from Hong Kong and the city of Stoke-on-Trent. This is the Classic Lenses Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 95. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by Perry G. Hello, Perry. Hello. Well, keen-eared listeners will realise that we're a man down this week. Um, We have technical problems and it's nothing to do with Johnny's bowels this time. Um, So Johnny can't be with us this week. Um, But there's some good news and that's we're joined by Cheyenne Morrison, who is... uh, the guest that should have been with us about two weeks ago. So I'm delighted uh, that Cheyenne is with us. So uh, hello, Cheyenne. Hello, Simon, and hello, Perry. Hello. Yeah, great. It's great to have you back. Because we were we a couple of weeks ago, we we were chatting in the. I think our, our chat started at like around midnight uh, your time. Midnight my time, yeah. Yeah, we were t- yeah we were talking for an hour or so. So uh, so you you managed to get to bed, which which is good, and uh, and we've also been able to start this podcast a little bit earlier. So it, it's not such a ridiculous time for you this time. So um, so yeah, it's great Much to have appreciate you. Appreciate Thank thank you, Simon. Okay, well, um, I think we should just uh, get straight on with things. So um, Perry, what have you been up to? Uh, it was relatively quiet for a little bit, um, but things have kicked up again. Uh, so I have been shooting a little bit, and Ricardo Bion will probably like this. I've been shooting almost exclusively digital. Um, yeah, well, I mean, it's really working for me at night. So I shot uh, two things this week. I was at a Thanksgiving protest. It wasn't really a protest. It was more of a celebratory rally in the city at night. Um, I was actually stuck in traffic, and I, I realized that this rally was going on nearby, so I just got off and went to photograph it. Got some really cool pictures. It was right after the yeah, U.S. The passed. Flag. The guy yeah, with the so, flag. I love that photo. Yeah, yeah. So it was just after the U.S. passed a bill in support of uh, human rights and democracy in Hong Kong. So there were, I don't know, maybe 100,000 people out celebrating and uh, U.S. flags, V for Vendetta masks. What are those? Those are Guy Fawkes masks, right? Yeah, that's, that's right. It's, I believe. Yeah. it's from the movie V. Yeah. You haven't seen the movie? I have, but they're, they're Guy Fawkes masks, right? Yeah, they're, no, they're the masks that were used in the movie V. But yeah, they that, are, t- yeah, they're Guy Fawkes masks, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, they, so, may well, they may as well be V for Vendetta masks these days, or anonymous and things like that. But uh, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, I'm being pedantic. Sorry. So, so that was that was cool for two reasons. Um, number one, just the scenes were really photogenic, and yeah, I uh, yeah, I got some real uh, images that I'm super happy with. But also, I was shooting mostly with my Zeiss uh, 3514ZM Distagon, which is just an incredible lens for nighttime shooting that I try to avoid because most of the time it's just too big, but it's perfect for this. But for some reason, I just happened to be carrying my uh, 5.8 centimeter F2 Biotar. And the so I, blade, the early version. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I want to ask you about this in a moment, but sure. <clears throat> essentially it, I, I had, I slapped it on my M240 for a couple of shots and I used live view. And it's a te- terrible, terrible camera to use uh, for live view shooting because there's just this horrific lag um, between the shutter going off and when you can shoot again. But I had this lens. I had my exact adapter, and there were a couple of shots I wanted a bit tighter. And it looks really cool. But but the question I want to ask you, Cheyenne, about this is, um, 
there are a couple versions of the Exacta Biotar, and I know that this one is among the more desirable. Uh, is that true? Because I only got it because it looked cool. <laughs> well, if you only got it because it's cool, it's cool. That's, um, yeah, like I'm not sure which the version that you've got. What, is, what does it look like? Because the Exacta versions are really different to the it's M42 black. versions. Uh, it's black, sort of a black paint brass. Is it small, um, like, it, like a yeah? Is it's it a like tiny a one. Jupiter three size. Yeah, yeah, it's the really small one. Yeah, yeah, that's so. My understanding is that um, there, there's no difference between the M forty two and the Exacta version mm -hmm. in the seven in the seventeen blade. Um, there's a difference be, with the 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 seventy five mil biotar. Yeah. Um, there's a difference between the M42 and the Exacta version, but in the in the 58, they're, they're the same. But I'll, I'll have to double check on that. Yeah, but, I, I think um, this version is more desirable just because it's a little bit rarer. And what? In in what? Because well, that that early 17 blade version was only made, I think, for about three years. Mm. So there's not a lot of them around, and. Um, my understanding is that, like, a lot of those lenses were made kind of like from 1949 to about 1951, 52, and it was just after the war when they're literally, like, working in bombed-out factories with secondhand bits and pieces and machines they cobbled together, and the Russians had stolen most of the stuff, so the fact they even made lenses is really incredible. And, yeah, it's, um, it's beautifully made. Well, pre, yeah, it's all pre-war because uh, like that early period just uh, was just after World War World War Two, so actually all the designs and the metallurgy and 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 the, the optics, the lenses and everything is pre-war, except um, uh, Zeiss um, had just bought out coatings um, during World War Two, and I think it was nineteen forty three or nineteen forty four, and they actually offered people during the war that they could bring their pre-war lenses back to the factory and the factory would recoat them. But it was yeah. really, really rare to have coated lenses and and those 58mm biotars were, were some of the very first coated lenses in the world, yeah. kind of around the same time period as the Ektar, Kodak Ektar, and they had their their coating. And then Wallensack, they also had the, the Wocoat sodium fluoride coating. So those... Really, really early lenses with coated lenses. They they got a they all kind of have a really similar look. They're kind of soft, wide open, and but the mm. colours are really lovely. They're, I think it's the yeah. coating. Schneider has also got the same kind of look. I mean, they all the lenses all operate differently in different lengths and stuff. But the coatings, that really early coatings, they all kind of give a certain kind of look to them. I mean, talk about. Uh, different look. When I went home and downloaded these pictures, uh, the the difference between the way the Biotar rendered and the more modern Zeiss Distagon, I mean, normally you can see it anyway, but when you kind of see it side by side in similar kinds of shots, um, it's super satisfying, you know, because we talk about character of lenses all the time, and yeah. in an individual image, sometimes it can get a little bit lost unless it's very distinctive. When you got two yeah. sets of images of the same kind of subject and they're side by side, I mean, the color palette, the, the sharpness profile, 
Um, yep. The contrast is just, they're worlds apart. It's super cool, the two different looks. And very, very different on digital and film. I mean, oh, yeah. like it's like two different lenses almost. You know, so yeah. basically on, on digital, you know, this is like something that Johnny kind of went on about. I kind of knew it, but Johnny, it's kind of like his bugbear. And he jumps in when people, and, and rightly so, is that there's like lens, like everyone goes on about the Helios 44. And I kind of like, yeah, oh, I had these other lenses, really nice lenses, much better. But I thought, yeah, I'll get one. I'll try one. So I got a really beautiful Zenit, um, the export version from the ones from the UK. And it was looked like it had just sat in a box for 50 years. It was spotless and the lens was, I don't think anybody actually even touched it. And I shot it um, on on that camera, the original Zenit camera, with uh, BW400CN, which is kind of like a nice film. Um, and I got some okay images, but on film they just looked soft and mushy. Mm-hmm. But when you put it on digital, everything's like amped up to 11 and you get bokeh balls and you get the swirly bokeh. But if you shoot on film, yeah, it's completely different. You don't get that. And yeah. um, with the 17-blade Biotar, um it's beautiful on film, like much better than the Helios. And people say, oh, the, you know, the Helios 44, it's like a copy of the, of the Biotar. Well, yeah, but they, they put the images side by side on film. They look different, I mean, readily different. You know, mm-hmm. the, the Biotar's got way more 3D pop, and I think the colours in colour are much nicer. But when you put it on digital, I mean, the, the Helios 44 just gets that look that everybody wants that lens for. But if you put it on film on a film camera, not so good. Pretty average, actually. I'm not. I'm. I'm just not convinced by that, you know, Cheyenne, because I mean, I've had a um, a 58 mil or five five point eight centimeter biotar. Um, the bit where my argument falls down is I've not tried either of them on film, but you know, I've tried the Helios 40, oh. 44 2s, 44s, and uh, and and a couple of biotars, and really, I. Again, this is on digital, but I couldn't really discern much of a difference between any of them. There was there were some that were just had like an edge, which is usually the case with like sample variation. And then, well, I guess what I'm talking more about is is sharpness rather than uh, what's going on in the outer focus areas. But yeah, and you got and you got chromatic aberration, and you got a whole lot of other stuff going on in those old lenses. Yeah, but I'm just I'm just the viewer, and we and we did. I think I'm referencing the same. Um, almost rant that Johnny had a few few weeks ago about things being different on film. And I said, well, yes, but well, you're talking about um, either black and white or colour negative film, whereas if you were shooting that on slide film, would you be say, saying the same thing? And, the, and, it was, and everything just went a little bit quiet at that point because obviously slide film is higher resolution, should we say, for especially effectively on, on the smaller formats. And it's that much closer to the look of digital. Oh, okay. So the difference... So, yeah, was, there was a thing in the group a while ago and we discussed this and I kind of made some responses in the group to a comment somebody made. Um, the thing with the digit, the difference now, just as all the listeners out there, I'm not pro film and anti-digital. I just prefer film. I've, I, I, I shot professionally. 
Um, I was the number one private island broker in the world for 10 years and I traveled to about 120 different countries and I shot aerial photography and I had a, you know, the most expensive Canon and a big zoom lens and, and it, it, it did perfectly what I wanted, but, um, for a lot of history I won't go into, I just decided to go back to film and I prefer film, but you know, neither is right, neither is wrong, but the, what the difference is between film and digital that a lot of people don't understand is because they've grown up in the digital era and they film is a retro thing to them it's kind of that's a lot of the cachet of film shooting is it's retro you know like having nlp player or vintage typewriters and stuff like that well I, i'm old enough that i grew up with film my whole life and i remember when digital came out and i didn't want to use it because i thought um i was just pro film stupidly pro film and then when i needed it for business it worked for me and I used digital. But the difference between the image that you get, now people talk about sensors. Okay, well, it's really simple. A digital camera is, uh, the digital camera sensor is flat. It is completely two-dimensional and film has layers. So you've got um, an anti-halation layer, then you've got th between three to five different color layers and so you talked about the difference between slide or positive film and negative film. Um, slide film and negative film have different layers. Um, slide film is really the difference is that you get better colours. I don't know about sharpness. I think to an extent, yeah, but I think that really more depends on the lens. But what's happening is the difference between the light that hits film and the light that hits digital, all the light in all the spectrums hits the digital sensor on one plane. Whereas with film, um, there are different layers that the light and the different colours have to travel through and it's three-dimensional. So Johnny mentioned this a bit but what actually what you can get and the difference that you see if you had exactly the same lens and you shot it on a digital camera and then you shot it on a film camera and all things being the same as much as you could get it um the the the, the difference is pretty readily apparent more so on negative film than on slide film and um, on slide film, it's generally crisper and a little bit maybe more contrasty, not sharper. I'd say contrasty because positive film or what they call slide film was developed for professional photographers and it was what the professional photographers back in the day needed is they had to have really good colour rendition because it ha um, had to be reproduced um, manually. They didn't have scanners, so it, it would be printed out and turned into colour plates, and it had to be able to make the colour plates. And it had to have good contrast because um, the colour plates would be turned into halftones. So I, I, I used to be a graphic artist, and I got my apprenticeship in 1979, and I worked with all the old-school technology back then, and when you did cut and paste, what people talk about, you literally cut the stuff up and put it in a glue machine and actually pasted it down. It was literally cut and paste. And so all that old school technology was in the printing industry and the magazine industry 
um, kind of made photographers want to aim for certain things because that's what the art directors wanted. So um, I'm getting off a little bit off tangent off the thing, but that, yeah, so at the end of the story is that digital is two-dimensional, completely two-dimensional, and film is, is, is completely three-dimensional. And I will dig up a, um, I've got a good graphic, uh, you know, which shows how that works. So, um, yeah, and I, I don't think either is right or either is wrong. I don't think there's I, the whole business with people being anti-digital or pro-film or, or vice versa. I just think that's silly. I just think they're just different and whatever works for you and whatever, like Perry's saying, you know, shooting at night and protests, I wouldn't be shooting film. Well, you know, you push film to 32. I've tried. I've tried many yeah. times and I'm still doing it. But yeah, digital digital is working better. And I back mean, in the and back in the day, you know, the photographers knew that. Like back in the day, um, like um Stephen, like Stephen Dowling, um, I keep calling him Zorky Photo, is not. Um, but Stephen used to shoot concerts and you know, it was really a struggle for t- photographers to shoot in concerts in low light with high-speed films and they almost had grainy shots all the time and it kind of they adopted the grain and the grain was cool because they had no choice, you know. So for what you were doing shooting the protest, digital was the way to go, 100%. Yeah, and I mean to to kind of wrap, wrap that up, um, the last night there was a, a couple of shots I was taking. Well, I should back up for a second. If my voice sounds a little bit weird, it's because I got tear gassed again last night. Um, And the circumstances this time were a a little odd. Basically, there there were three approved legal protests on Sunday. And the one in the afternoon in uh, an area called Chimsa Choi was much larger than I think the cops had anticipated. Uh, It was like some absurd number, hundreds of thousands. And they said 16,000, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the numbers are, the organizers will come out and say there's 100,000. The cops will say there's 8,000. <laughs> you just look at the pictures and make up your own mind. But basically, this protest, <coughs> uh, that's the deer gas. Um, this protest, it, it was supposed to end at 6 p.m. And at about 4.30, the cops started, they basically said, no, we cancel our letter of no objection. This is now an illegal protest. Uh, because there's too many of you, you're spilling onto the street, and they start tear gassing people. So then that evening, as the sort of remnants of that rally were were dispersing, for some reason there were like 300 riot cops in my neighborhood, and it was around 7 p.m. So I was watching this, thinking, okay, I'm going to wait until these guys leave, and then I'm going to go and get some dinner. Uh, so as they were finally starting to leave, I thought, okay, cool, now's a good time for me to go down. Um, and go grab some food because it, it, it was around 7.30. I, I go into my neighborhood and as the police are leaving, there's hundreds of residents who have come down to heckle them on their way out. And as the cops are getting into their vans, they turn around and they fire five rounds of tear gas into the crowd. Like a as like, Yeah, as like a goodbye gift. Um, yeah. and, and so I, I was sort of watching this from the outer edge of the crowd and I saw the sort of trails of, of uh, flames going through the air and I was thinking oh that's no good and then I, I was looking around trying to figure out where they were shooting this tear gas 
And then I looked to my left and there was a tear gas canister about two meter, two meters to my left. Uh, which is the closest I've been to one. Oh. And so I turn around and I start running and then I stop and I think, wait, this is a cool photo op. <laughs> well, you did so, it. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. <clears throat> so I turn around, I pull my, uh, I had my M240 with me with a 35 Distagon. I pull my camera out and I start framing the photo and I take the shot. And as I'm about to take my second and third shots, the, the tear gas hits me straight in the face because I'm so close to it. So now I can't see shit. And I'm trying to take photos of tear gas and, and the crowd running. Um, and it, it's just, it's not going well. So I just turn around and I start leaving. But then I turn around again and all the people were running towards me. But I couldn't, I could barely see because I'm in a cloud of tear gas or I've just come out of a cloud of tear gas rather. Jeez. And so I did something that I think I would not have done on film. As the crowd was running towards me, I used the little focus tab on my lens and I just, I guessed the focus distance by feel. Um, frame. No, I was at wide open and be there because it's at night, right? Okay. Um, so that doesn't quite work. I had to be quite precise. So I, I guessed the distance by feel um, using the focus tab, framed by feel because I couldn't see anything and clicked, clicked away a couple of frames. And when I got home, I got one shot that I'm quite happy with of uh, an old guy trying to put out a tear gas canister. And then another shot of the crowd of just residents running towards me and running away from a cloud of tear gas. And I, there's no way I would have taken that shot on film because I didn't know where I was focusing. I couldn't see the rangefinder patch because it was dark and my eyes were tear gassed. Um, but I took it on digital because, you know, there's you press the button, right? If in doubt, you press the button. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that so you, did, that you I, didn't stand, you didn't stand there and chimp in the tear gas. I got out of the tear gas, and I was sort of hacking my lungs off at the side, and and a whole bunch of people came up to me, um, to help. One guy came and gave me saline water to wash out my eyes and nose. Yeah, and a couple other people came and gave me water and instructed me very precisely on how to wash out my mouth and throat. After that, I chimped. <laughs> <laughs> I need the chimping is somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah, it's digital, right? That's what it's for. So get tear gas and then and then chimp away. Yeah. Wow. Okay, that's that's so, pretty cool. Yeah. So hey, digital has its has its merits, um, so and I'm get, I'm really happy with the results. To get back to where we started, so you were shooting the distagon and yeah. the. The, the biotar that was at the thanksgiving rally last night i when i was getting tear gas i was just using the distagon i'm, I'm not changing lens in the middle of a no middle no no, a, I, I, you know, I get that. no like what yeah. we were talking about before you were just comparing oh yeah, shot. yeah yeah so but so so you, you what is it about the, the the what's the image rendition or what is it about the the 17 blade biotar that you really like Versus the Distagon. It, it, it wasn't really a versus thing. It was, I had the Distagon with me and I knew that that was going to be my main lens for shooting at night. Um, and then there were a couple of shots that I wanted to just get a, a tighter close-up of <clears throat> a few people who were wearing those Guy Fox masks. Um, yeah, and there was sort of uh, city, city lights in the background instead of American flags. So yeah. I, I, uh, I wanted yeah. okay. You're pre-visual. You're pre-visualizing, right? Uh, well, I'm shooting digital, so I can kind of see what it looks like. 
Um, yeah. But I, I wanted the bokeh. Like, I wanted the swirly. Yeah. yeah. You'll get but that. the color palette is a lot... Uh, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, the Distagon is crisp. It's sharp. It's, like, modern-looking. The Biotar is much smoother. Um, I think you would say it's kind of like... It's, it's kind of like a like a vintage postcard. It's kind of the colors are a bit muted. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. they're definitely more muted. Yeah. They're a little warmer. Um, yeah. And like the it, light. It, in some lights, it'll give you like a like a kind of like a golden color. Yes, like yes. And it glows. In the, in the right light, it'll, it'll make the whole image kind of like a goldy color. I got a beautiful picture of my daughter yeah. holding a camera in the cane fields and it was the sun was setting and – like the the digital camera is all in focus, and she's just behind me. The cane fields and the light, the whole everything behind is just gold, like a golden glowing color. Yeah, yeah. and then the the background specular highlights with the Distagon are just very very tight, either sun stars or bokeballs. Whereas with the Biotar, they kind of they spill out a little bit. There's a little bit of glow. Yeah, um, and that's it's it's a much softer look with the way that those highlights render, and it's it's quite it's quite lovely. Well, it's like the seventy-five millimeter biotar is like yeah, it's like that on crack. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this yeah. is not quite as pronounced as that seventy-five millimeter. And actually, like for an ordinary person, like well, there's a whole story I I wanted to go into with Johnny here, but. Um, how I got that 75 mil biotar. Thank you, Johnny, for helping me getting my 75 mil biotar. It's a whole long story. <laughs> um, but that the prices they're going for now is just mental insane. Mm. Like I, I, I literally can't afford to buy another one. And but it's really like a really, really, really specific thing. The 75 mil biotar for portraits, whereas the 58 mil biotar, like you can pick up the 17 blade version. Um, sometimes they're not like perfect, but they'll still you'll still get pretty good images from them. Better condition than a lot of Jupiter threes people are shooting. Um, and you can pick one up for, I don't know, Simon, you would be able to say the price, but pretty reasonable prices, and they're a bit more versatile and yeah, a great lens. I mean, I really, really, really love that. You know, early seventeen blade Biota, the fifty-eight millimeter. It's just gorgeous. And the build yeah. quality and, and everything. Oh, it's so well built. It's so well built. Yeah. yeah. Well, I got one that tops it, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> yeah. So that was my week. If you hear me coughing or if my voice sounds a little rough, because I just I just recovered from my previous tear gassing. So and let last me, night let me I, I got it straight in the face. Let me get this story straight. So, okay, you got accidentally tear gassed last week, but this week um, you saw the tear gas could have run away, but took a photo and was supposed to feel sorry for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair, fair. Okay. I, I, well, I had to make a very quick decision. It was either get the photo and eat a face full of tear gas or eat a little bit of tear gas and don't get the photo. I but went was for the it, photo. Yeah, what, yeah was, it the, was it the D-Day photo or was it actually a really good photo? I'm quite happy with it. Yeah. Yeah, good. Well, that, then it was worth it. That's good. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. Well, like everybody said in the in the Facebook group, um, plenty of times, and uh, you know we've chatted about this privately. Um, yeah, just be safe, man. Yeah. Um, hey, that was in know. my own neighborhood. There, there was there was nothing 
untoward going on other than the cops tear gassing us. So it was just one of those, again, wrong place, wrong time. But at least well, I had a camera. I just rem- you know, I just remember like you know, the time they they went into the train station. Oh yeah, and hammered all those kids, and then the you know yeah. the time the, the gang and uh, yeah. they seem to have like realized they went a bit overboard with stuff like that, and they pulled back a little bit. But um, yeah, Xi Jinping in China—they're really feeling shaky, and they're not really happy about what's happening there. So I—I yeah. yeah, I really, really love that V for Vendetta movie, and um, it's just so cool seeing those kids wear those masks because it's like a real finger in the eye to authority. And yeah, the, man, the cool part of that brave. rally was was they had most of them were wearing it on the back of their heads. Um, and yeah, so I saw you that. Could, yeah, you just get right up to them behind them and, and shoot it almost like a uh, like it's staring you in the face. Yeah, that's that's just oh man, really. Yeah, I mean, um, kind of envious because you're in the center of world events there, and um, you know, well, what's the Chinese curse? May you live in dangerous times, but for a <laughs> photographer, that's kind of like where you want to be, right. Uh, yeah, I mean that's true. It, there's definitely truth, truth in that. I mean, it's a double-edged sword, obviously. Yeah. Well, I just I hope and pray, like everybody else around the world, that everything ends up well, not badly, and that that with the elections and uh, you know the new law that passed in the U.S. protecting Hong Kong's freedoms and stuff, that um, yeah, the politicians can somehow back down. I just hope that everything doesn't go end up pear-shaped. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Simon, you have been up to a bunch of stuff, and I assume you have not been tear gassed. No, no, no tear gas, and I have been up to a bunch of stuff. But I'm just going to quickly just start off with uh, prices for biotars, 58, well, actually 5.8 centimeter biotars to be more precise. And they're all over the place uh, in price. And it does depend like on the, Yeah, the, the, the black ones um, are seem to be quite quite reasonable which i assume they're the m4 well i think they're generally m42 uh, but you can yes. get exactors um in black and in silver but the silver it's the silver lenses that seem to be um the ones where the the real value is um, i mean some of those are, you know people are asking like 700 pounds so what's that like about eight fifty dollars something like that you know it's uh, which, is, which is weird because it's usually the opposite usually it's like the black is more expensive isn't it yeah, yeah exactly yeah. but i mean you are, can put it on a silver or a black camera yeah and uh but there are there, and, uh, are, there are others that um are, are sensibly priced and uh what what's really surprised me so i didn't realize this but there's uh there's a 5.8 centimeter version that, that will go onto a contacts uh rangefinder camera uh, which are obviously getting uh, costing quite a bit as well. So uh, that yeah, that's, that's, that's really confused that's, me. That is. Yeah, they only made a few hundred of those. That is really that's really really rare. Yeah. Because I mean, the Zeiss Historica group, and um, so when I was hunting around for biotars, I first got into that group, and and they you know every kind of variation and the serial numbers and all that sort of stuff. I'm I'm not that kind of expert, but you know, I, I did a lot of research when I wrote the article. I wrote about the, I wrote two. I wrote one about the 58 mil biotar or 5.8 centimeter, whichever you want, um, and the 75 mil biotar. But um, yeah, they're both really, really good lenses. And as I said before, if anybody 
or normal people, you know, who don't have a spare kidney, cannot afford the 75 mil, get yourself 58 millimeter. It's a beautiful, beautiful lens and works well on film or digital. Yeah. So yeah, I get the feeling the price is only going to go up on those as well. So especially the, the well, I think they're under. I think I, like you said about the prices, it's all over the shop. And um, from what I've seen, um, you you can still pick ones up in pretty good condition um, that are not like perfect opti- optically. They might have some cleaning marks on the front, but as we've discussed in the podcast before, yeah, it's, as long as it's got no fungus, a few cleaning marks on the front aren't going to you know, affect the image too much. And you can pick them up pretty reasonably. Um, and compared to other lenses, you know, like um, some of the Helios 44, like the rarer versions are going for way more than than the original Biota, which is kind of crazy, really. Well, t- talking about conditional lenses, um, yeah, cleaning, cleaning marks are, are not really an issue. You just mentioned there about fungus. I mean, even fungus isn't necessarily that bad. I mean, sometimes you cannot clean it, uh, and it's but it's only going to show it in certain circumstances unless it's you know really really bad. Um, I think yeah. the, the thing that makes me uh, think twice uh, and only think in one direction, the answer is no, um, is haze. Uh, that's 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 the thing I, I just wish to avoid full stop although again mm-hmm. we've talked about haze many times before and there's different versions of haze as well uh, but and haze and i got yeah and sorry to interrupt but hay, haze in the and the 58 millimeter biotar the 17 blade it is prone to a little bit of haze um yeah. it seems to be prone to that but only a bit and the one i had had a little bit of haze in it but i just i got good images I was happy with it. It wasn't. It wasn't a deal breaker. Yeah, mine. Mine when I got it had a had a decent amount of haze, um, but the front element came off really easily and I just wiped it. And I would say yep. maybe eighty percent of it came off. Yeah, yeah. And for and, and that is a lens that is really worth getting a proper CLA. I mean, if you're going to buy lenses, I mean, I say this all the time to people. They drive me nuts. I mean, you know, oh, the, oh yeah, I got this lens, but no, I'm just going to whack it on there, and I, I you know, and and not do anything or look or look after it, but you know it's 50, 60, 70 year old lenses. Like you wouldn't get a, you wouldn't find a 50 year old car in a garage and just put petrol in it and you know drive it around the block. Um, you know you give it a bit of love first. And same with lenses. Some of the, um, a lot of them, in my experience with the biotars, generally um, they don't, um, they should be relubricated, but often the lubrication still. Okay, it's a little bit tight. Yeah, um, that's mine's a little tight for my liking. The focus. Yeah, and you well, you know the trick how to fix that. Sit it no. in the sun, put it on the window. Okay, sill for a while. that makes yeah. sense because what what I what I usually do with these is just warm it in my hands. Yeah, and uh, it makes it a little bit little bit smoother before I use it. Because you know the lubrication what they used to use. Have a guess, and it's not um, it's <laughs> not babushka bacon grease. It's no. something else bizarre. Have a guess. KY jelly? I don't know. <laughs> whale oil. Ah. Whale oil is whale oil is the best lubricant in the world. That's why they killed shitloads of whales, excuse my language. Um, and it's all the old school camera manufacturers, they used to use whale oil for the internal lubrication. Not everything, but some things. But they yeah. definitely use it on the aperture blades, on the biotars, because it, it lasts a really, really long time. You're telling and me my lens is not vegan? 
Dude, you're vegan? Seriously? No, no, I'm not. I shoot film, man. <laughs> okay. No, I spent no, like um, 10 minutes talking about burgers at the end of last episode. <laughs> yeah, it's so there's like, yeah, how many bad karmas are in each aperture blade? I don't know. You have to work that out for yourself. I, I just just think I just need to just clarify something as well. When I was saying like the, the silver ones seem to be more expensive than the black ones, um, just just are you doing a Carl, aren't you? No, no, I'm not. I'm not. I've bought I bought enough recently. I need to sell some stuff. Um, but it's okay. it's more about uh, because I, earlier on I mentioned that I'd had a, an exacta um, uh, biotar, which I didn't think was any any better than uh, certainly wasn't as good as my best Helios forty. And on digital, I've got to say, um, but that was a that was silver and it was exacter, but it wasn't thirteen blades or seventeen blades, whatever it is, and and that's the the, the key thing we're talking about here. Mine was a, a later version, and there are quite a few of those later versions. So if you you're there and you, you see one of these things that's silver, and you think, oh, Simon says they're about six hundred pounds or something stupid like that. Well, there are different versions of silver ones as well. So you do. And they need look. To- they, the look. The, I mean, the the rendition that you get from the lenses is is completely different. And it's not just because of the aperture blades. It's because the whole lens was completely redone. So the early seventeen blade version has got a. It's got seventeen aperture blades, which means the bokeh is really nice full open um but all lenses full open are full open um a bit shut closed down but also like so the the lens and the the lens barrel and everything on the later versions was different not just the fact that they've got less aperture blades so it looks very very different between there's a 17 blade was the first one then there was oh it's getting late but i think there was a there were some 14 blades but they were generally 12 and 10 blade versions um, um, they're still nice that the nine and the, the, the you know, the, the, the other versions, but they're just very, very different looking to this, to the early 17 blade version. Okay, well, um, this, this we digress. We're going to we, hear about we, what you bought. This we week. did digress, and that was uh, because, uh, simply because the, I was just about to, about to talk about a lens that I've got here that has cleaning marks, and that's how we got back onto that onto that subject. And, well, it was you digress then? It's your fault. Yeah, yeah, it's all my fault, and and it's it's actually. Um, a lens and a camera that I picked up a few weeks ago, but I just haven't actually got around to talking about it, and that's a uh, Yashica uh, YF. And it also says Nika on it, N I W C A, and it's. I, I picked this uh, camera up, and it, it's it's let's 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 just call it in user condition. It's it's not it's not pretty, um, but it's functional. And the the when you when you look through it, and you you from the back and looking at the front element from the rear, uh, you can see plenty of cleaning marks on it, and. And it is a case of cleaning marks. Yes, you don't want the lens with cleaning marks, but don't don't. That's not necessarily a reason to completely ignore it or or just say no. I'm not going to have that because it's got cleaning marks. Because I've I've tried this lens out um, the the other day on digital, and it's as sharp as you like. And uh, so clean, cleaning marks don't make that much of a difference. I think they probably might yeah. make more of a difference at night. 
uh, when you're getting like starburst and things like that, you're probably going to get something a bit more funky. Or if you, or if you, did, if you didn't have a lens hood, because it'll cause a little bit more flare apparently as well. Yeah, I didn't really notice that when I, I mean, it was quite bright when I was when I was having to play with this, so it didn't seem to make that much of a difference in this case. But the lens itself, uh, just to mention, it's a five centimeter f one point eight uh, Yashinon, uh, but it's an LTM lens. And uh, from what I can see, it's quite an uncommon lens. And it's how many aperture blades has it got? Sorry, and you can ask me that question. I was I was just uh, looking at it earlier. I was, can I can I count these? Let's just see. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, nine. It's got nine blades. Okay, right. Okay, because so that lens is kind of like the progenitor of the the lens that got made that everybody wants. You know the. Um, the f1.2 which is yashinon and kazina and so many made under so many different names and which we talked about shinon and there's the link between yashka and shinon and and yeah you could go, there's a whole labyrinth on the internet about variations on those lens but yeah that, but this that's is like the grand that's like the granddaddy yeah, yeah but it's that a that said though it's an ltm lens it's not an slr lens yeah. so, uh, so i know that lens yeah, well like, simon it's kind of like it's. I mean, in that all the later stuff that Yashika did, and you know, and then going on to Yash contacts Yashika series of cameras and lenses and all that sort of stuff. It was all built on lenses like what you've got. Yeah, I mean, it all happened over time. So, and it's really interesting, you know, to see. I'm really fascinated. I know it's really nerdy. I know. Because if you read my articles, <laughs> I, it's more about the history of the lens than chromatic aberration. It doesn't very get, and all other crap that people talk about almost never gets in my articles. And two thirds of it will be about the history because I love all the history. It's just really fascinating because all of these lenses, the reason I love these lenses is two things really. Firstly, is um, I like old things. I like vintage typewriters and I like vintage cars. I like old things. And But secondly is the Japanese have this philosophy that um, swords, like, so there's normal swords that they made, you know, they gave away to soldiers and they weren't anything, but there was master craftsmen who made really beautiful things and they were masters of their craft. And when they made something like they imbued it and the Japanese have this philosophy I can't remember the Japanese word, but it's basically that these inanimate objects are imbued with a soul of their own. And each of these old lenses either been, so it was owned by somebody or, or several people, and then it was made at a factory by a whole group of people. Like there was the person who designed it, the people who made it, and all those people put their love and passion into making those things, which are still usable 50, 60, 70 years later. And they're aesthetically beautiful, they're historically beautiful and you can make take photographs with them and that's a really, really, really cool thing. And, hey, you may not be interested in the history. You couldn't give a rat's. It's like, hey, I just want it for the bokeh. That's okay. But, you know, that's why I love shooting vintage lenses because they've all got great stories behind them and the cameras as well. I mean, so many of these people that design these things, they're just really cool, fascinating, interesting people. And to hold something in your hands and use something that is kind of their progeny, something they put a bit of their love and affection and they're kind of like their children that went out into the world and then we've adopted them. So that's the way I feel. That's my rant. 
No, yeah. I, I, I totally understand. And I mean, I've, I've, I think I've read all of all of the articles you've written, and uh, you they usually go on to uh, friend of the show's uh, site, uh, James Toccio, um, casual yeah. photo file, aren't they? Yeah, I'm writing. I used to write for lots of people, but I'm just writing exclusively for James on Casual Photo File now because James pays me, <laughs> which is good. <laughs> and also I'm working six or seven days a week and I just, I'm kind of limited. And each article I write, it's hundreds of hours of research. Um, I don't do it all at once. I do it over a period of time. And then when I've got all the research together, and I've got the lens and then I take photographs with it and I organize models and go out and do a photo shoot and then I've got everything all together and I write it. So it's really like a labor of love. Um, so um, being paid a little bit kind of gives me the excuse to be able to continue doing something that I really should get paid a lot more for. So, yeah, and I, I, do, I do lots of history in my articles because that's something that fascinates me. Some people want to see, um, I remember all those horrible lens tests from the 1970s where they had photographs of brick walls. You won't see brick walls in any of my articles. <laughs> it's lots of pictures of nice-looking girls, pictures of palm trees. Um, we don't have any protests here, but I can maybe I should start one so I can get tear gas. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, Simon, that, that Yashica lens, uh, I almost bought one the other week. Or actually, a couple months ago, um, but I I didn't just because it's it's just a good lens, you know. Mm. Um, it 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 handles well. There's nothing about it that that is w really weird, you know. It's a nice handling, good looking, sharp lens. It, it reminds me a bit of a maybe a nicer version of the Canon 50 1.8 LTM. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah. I think the Canon is just a bit nicer looking, though. I, I love those old. LTM Canon lenses yeah. are really gorgeous. Oh, uh, I mean the, the Serena. That God, that's so. Mm. It's just so sexy looking. Yeah. Well, there are there are different versions of the Serenade, though, aren't there? Or other the the fifty one point eight. And I think there's like a yeah. like black ones and there are, there are silver yeah. ones. And I think some are better than others. But this, I, what I do like about the look of this lens is it is actually very similar to one of my favourite lenses, which. Um, is one of those lenses which are, which are, almost certainly appears in, on different brands, and that's the uh, the Yashinon 50mm f2 uh, mm -hmm. for SLR lenses, and it's got the same type of um, focus ring, which is uh, just grooves, yeah. just 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 cut across it all the way around. So it has it has that family look uh, about it. Um, so it's, I think they, I think they rebranded that lens for Sears, and I've got a pick. I've got a picture from uh, 1958 Sears catalog with that on the front, but it's rebranded as Sears, but the picture's fantastic. Mm -hmm. It yeah. just makes you, like, want to buy it. It's really cool looking. Well, it's, it's, I think it's manufactured by Tomioka. Yeah. That's that's that's, well, yeah, that's always been my 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 always thought as well because I've I've also yeah. got well I did I did have and I've mentioned a while back um, I had this exactly the same looking lens just with a different uh, lens plate with uh, it was a Mamiya um, version um, mm. not the SX because they were made by uh, Mamiya or Mamiya um, but uh, yeah the 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 the, the regular fifty mm f two is it's I'm sure it's the same lens. Was I've tried a few of them. And they're just really really sweet lenses. Really really nice. Mm -hmm. But um, but the other thing about this is the camera that it's attached to, which is which I'm finding quite interesting um, mm. because it's got the look 
of one of the later uh, Japanese Leica copies. So it's quite squared off rather than being a, a, an obvious copy of a, a Leica 3, which you know they all seem to start off with. Um, so this is more squared off, and it's it's as well as it's co-branded with Nikka. Uh, Nikka uh, certainly made uh, Leica copies. And, uh, yeah, and, yeah. yeah, and Yashika, um, they basically uh, consumed whatever the right word is. Um, uh, Nika came under uh, Yashika, and this is co-branded between the two. Um, oh, they actually, they actually bought. They actually bought the company. Yeah, exactly. And uh, but this this camera's really odd um, because it's got that sort of one of the later looks, as if like it's a, a copy of a of a Leica M style camera. Um, mm. But it's still bottom loading, and yeah, and the oh, fact really? that, yeah, and the, but the fact that it's even bottom loading at all is a bit of a surprise to me because most of the Japanese yeah. versions have all got you know a sensible uh, film door, um, mm. and and this hasn't. But not only that, um, it is a it, it's it's definitely got its roots in in the Barnack camera because it's got the the slow speed dial yeah. on the front. Um, mm -hmm. Just like a, a, a Leica three does, but again, you go but to the back of the camera, and it's got a swing door. Yeah, it's got one of those flappy doors, like a Leica M camera. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it, it's a it's a hybrid between all different this, types. This is the oh. ultimate Franken camera, I think. And the viewfinder has the kind of Canon Canon seven esque style uh, multi layered contrast. You know what I'm talking about? Um, I think I do because I did try one the other day, and it, I, can, I can see a, a, a similarity from what I remember. Like, like if you look at your M2, you have you just look through the window, and then all the projected stuff is on a single plane. Yeah. Whereas on these viewfinders, which I personally don't like very much, but you find them on the Canon 6L, the Canon P, the Canon 7, that series. Uh, th there's a kind of diagonal projected thing on top of where the rangefinder patch sits to add contrast. And then you have kind of a tinted, like a sort of tinted um, layer with a kind of cross in it. It's, it's like there's multiple layers to the viewfinder, if you know what I mean. Um, well, it's not. Yeah, there, there are some similarities. Like there's nothing diagonal going on here, uh, but there are there are tints and uh, there's greens and yellows going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. The, the multi layers of tints. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That that is uh, sort of. To me, that's quintessentially late Canon rangefinder, and also some of the later Nikon SLRs, uh, Nikon rangefinders have that kind of viewfinder. Hmm. And then you've got the weird film advance, which is like inside the camera body, right? Yeah, and that's yeah. and it's good. It works really well. It makes you wonder yeah, yeah. Why, why didn't anybody else do this? But it, it's it's fast and it's in the right place. Uh huh. And then you've got a shutter button that's unlike any other rangefinder of that era. Yeah, um, it's a very strange, like Franken camera. Yeah, uh, it's kind of cool. I like it. Mm. I really do. I think it's a, it's a sweet camera. Chema don't like rangefinders, isn't it? But I like <laughs> to, to use them at least. I like I like to hold them to play with them and and, and press the shutter button. But I just not so keen on using them. But there you go. Uh, but what, what else did you get this week, Simon? Um, well, what other goodies did you pick up? I'm a little bit conscious that uh, we we haven't even got to the main reason for you coming on the show um so I'll, i'm gonna i'm gonna uh briefly uh fly through what i have and if you wish to ask me any questions on this or later then uh, go for it but uh yeah i'll, I'll I, keep it to a minimum sorry i picked up a practica six uh six by six medium format camera uh with three lenses um it's got a a, a zebra uh biotar 80 mil 
2.8 and it also came with a couple of other lenses so it's got the 50 millimeter flectagon f4 uh, which is effectively a 35 millimeter lens in full frame terms and uh, and i've had one of those before as as i as i have the uh, 80 mil and they're both uh, good lenses although the the flectagon is really really susceptible to to flare and doesn't like to be pointed anywhere near the sun even when i had one before with an absolutely enormous hood uh, because it's a big lens with a big front element and you need an absolutely massive hood for it if you're going to use a hood and it, it it still still uh, loses contrast way too easily um but the other lens that came with it which is actually the, the reason that got me excited about it potentially is a, a 120 millimeter f 2.8 biotar so that's effectively Ooh. the portrait lens of the that's range. Lens, yeah. yeah. And it, Sorry, it, Simon, when yeah. you're 80, did you said biotar, but did you mean biometar? I did. Yeah, that's thank you for the correction there. Biometar. Okay, yes. cool, cool, cool. I was just like, what oh, is this? Yeah. I've never heard of it. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Calm <laughs> yeah, down, yeah. everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Bio, biometar, which is the uh effectively it's a plane of uh, I believe, on top of my head. They did make a hundred they did make a medium format 100 millimeter f2 biotar but it's yes. super rare oh, yeah. and it's kind of been under the radar and selling for less than the 75 millimeter biotar but all of a sudden in the last year or two like they've been starting to go zoom up in prices because it's pretty much like a 75 millimeter f1.5 biotar but for medium format and i would love to have one of those lenses what there's a guy in Poland and um, he's reformatting them to shoot on um, um, Pentax 645 and Contact 645. And that's, yeah, awesome lens for shooting weddings and portraits. There's also a 100 millimeter F0.73 Biotar. I, yeah. enough, so you've just gone onto eBay just like I have then, uh, Perry. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I've just spotted that just the same time as you. Yeah, be like Carl. Yeah, yeah, we are this we time. From heaven. We love you, Carl. Right. Well, yeah, that's why I miss Carl. Every time you guys would be on the podcast and Carl would literally be on Facebook with me asking me about lenses and buying lenses while he's recording the podcast. <laughs> And it gazumped me a couple of times. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you can get this one. And and there's this one and like, yeah, I'm like, and there's and he'd spot the one that was really cheap and he'd grab it. Like, bastard. I love you, Carl. But anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um and is that all you got this week or what else did you get, Simon? Well, I'm just I think we just need to just touch upon these hundred millimeter Fs. 0 0.73 uh, lenses which aren't you would you would imagine these things would be absolutely astronomically priced but they're not um i mean there's one here it's uh okay it's not it's hardly cheap but they, you know they're going from like 500 pounds plus but for a 0 0.73 biotar that still sounds pretty cheap there but um but, I mean, it, it must be some old, like, scope or x-ray lens because there's no aperture, yeah, but, there's no focusing mechanism, it's just an optical block. Yeah. No, the, the, the x-ray the lenses and the problem is, because I looked into this, yeah, because I got a really a bit obsessed with biotars at one stage, I <laughs> um, readily admit. Um, and uh, so with, the, uh, with those really fast old x-ray lenses, it's really a pain in the behind to kind of get them to work on a normal M42 camera 
or a digital camera, you got you got a. There's no way you'll focus to infinity. Yeah, yeah. There's no way to focus to infinity. It's a macro and, lens. Yeah, and you've got a. You, you, sometimes they're like pulled apart and fitted in the front element, fitted into a focusing helicoid, and actually. But ones like that, when they're actually modified and everything, they they tend to go for big money because yeah. the ones that will actually like focus properly. But most of them are X-ray lenses, and basically all you can do is shoot them wide open, and you can't shoot them at infinity. And I don't really see the point of that. Yeah. So no matter how fast they are. Well, there's a, there was a. Oh, sorry. I, I was just going to say, there's. A, I'm just looking at one of the adverts from a chap in Poland. Might be the same one as uh, we've just been talking about. And he's called the the, the Bocky factory. Uh, the Palo Newski or something. I oh, forget what it is. It's, it's on not, Facebook. Yeah, this is on PK six seven four. Is the vendor name? But he in the uh, description he mentions that. Yeah, it goes into some detail. It, you know, it's clearly difficult to use this, uh, but it, it focuses somewhere, depending on how close you get it to the sensor, uh, between 0.3 meters and 1.2. So 1.2 meters away is about as far as infinity yeah. is going to get with it. So, yeah, that's that's pretty limiting. And I have seen shots done with them, and they're just they're very um, abstract. It's not for yeah, yeah, actual photography. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah, so for people that complain about the bokeh and my. 75 mil biotar, they would go mental at those photographs. <laughs> yeah. But I've, I've failed completely to find a, a 100 millimeter uh, biotar or 10 centimeter no, no. biotar. They, 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 they exist. They, they, yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they were made for the Exacta 66 camera. Yeah. So the Exacta 66 was kind of like a, a TLR system camera, like the Rollerflex, made in East Germany. Um, and um, it had a bayonet mount similar to other exacta cameras but it was medium format so um often um they're not a good camera because they they were pretty renowned even when they came out for reliability problems and there's people that fix them up and there are a couple of really bad things in them that almost invariably have to be fixed up so the only it's kind of a collector's camera it's not really a shooter's camera yeah. which is why i think that 100 millimeter or sorry 10 centimeter f2 biotar for medium format 6x6 is not really that well known because the camera system's really really obscure um but you can well, get them yeah if you get them um reformatted to shoot with um digital medium format yeah like amazing there's one for sale on ebay uh from a shop here in hong kong that i actually know quite oh, well yeah uh, it's 25% off. It's it's 25% off right now, and it's been modified to Pentax 645. Uh, yeah. So it can be yours for the bargain price of 4,400 US dollars. Bargain. Yeah. yeah. So tip 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 for anybody that wants to find one of those. Um, get your German dictionary and hop on German eBay or Poland or Eastern Europe because that's where you're going to find them. But um, be prepared to hunt for quite a while and to get one. Actually, the good news is because the cameras were so shitty, the lenses are usually in good condition because the cameras f***ed up. <laughs> <laughs> so the lenses didn't get much use. <laughs> the cameras, throw the camera away or just sell it to some idiot collector. But the lens, yeah, yeah, get it reformatted to work on contact 645 or some other medium format camera and uh yeah great lens right. i shouldn't be telling people this stuff 
yeah, these. I mean, even though the the, the cameras aren't very good, they these sixty sixes are going for strong money. Uh, yeah, because no they're, they're, they're collectors' items. Because uh, for exacto collectors, it's part of like the 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 exactors have always had a really really big collector community. Even going back to the fifties, they had a huge big community in the states. They had their own collectors' magazine from the nineteen fifties. They had meetups. It was like Exacta had, I don't know what it, they did with their marketing and stuff, but people really, really loved Exactas. And there's people like Exacta Jack and people like him that just, you know, they know everything about Exacta cameras. And so if you have all the cameras, you know, that that's a medium format version. So you've got to get one, and yeah. whether they work or not, sitting on your shelf and you've got one. Yeah, there's a chap that comes every time to the Wolverhampton Camera Fair that I'll always have a conversation with. We'll see. He's, he's, he's always looking to see what exact kit I've got. And he's one of those people that you can just ask a question. He will have an encyclopedic knowledge and give you the answer. Well, he'll be able to answer your questions. So, um, yeah. Yeah, people uh, like that are worth their weight in gold. Yeah, absolutely. Well, very, very quickly, um, one more one more purchase. Uh, and I shared this in the, uh, in, in the facebook group as well and that's uh, a speed graphic a graphlex speed graphic um this time the correct size as well because i bought one of these things by accident before uh, because you get there's actually i found out via mike novak there's actually three sizes of speed graphics um there's a, a tiny one which effectively uses uh, 120 film or you can convert it to 120 very very easily uh, yeah, the baby they call it the baby speed that's, graphic. that's right but there's actually one there's another size up which I've already forgotten what size it is. And then mm. there's the one that I've always wanted and I've managed to, to get hold of one, a really nice clean one. Uh, and that's uh, a four by five large format camera. Um, so yeah, and the, the, the terrible thing is they all look the frigging same. Yeah, they do. They do. They, <laughs> it's they, horrible. Yeah. They just, they just resized them. Uh, you know, literally all the parts are just slightly larger. It's, it's, it's quite remarkable. So nothing is as sexy as your Meridian though. That is a really, I love that camera. That it, is really, it is really gorgeous, cool. but there's a there's yeah. a there's a case certainly for both. But they look quite similar, and people confuse the the Meridian with a with a Speed Graphic or a Crown Graphic, um, and it's quite different because it's actually based more off a of Linhof, um, so it's a it's it's a technical camera. So you've got a full range of front and rear movements, uh, whereas with the the Speed Graphic and the Crown Graphic, you I don't think the, I'm not sure if the Crown Graphic has rear movements or not actually, but uh, but certainly. Um, the very restricted range of movements at the front of the camera um, compared to the Meridian, uh, which is really useful for if you're doing architectural photography. Um, whereas the ultimately the speed graphic was a it was a press camera, you know. So it was yeah, I didn't, it, they didn't need a lot of options. Exactly, you, know, yeah, you, you didn't have movements. Yeah, just point point the yeah. thing at what you're taking and take the shot and then get it off to the newspaper. That was that was its primary job. So uh, it didn't need all of that other stuff. So it could be made a little bit lighter than the technical cameras as well. So uh, so that's it. So that that's that's my purchasing week, uh, more or less. And I think well, we were going to talk about some of the things that you may have been up to, Cheyenne. But I think what we'll do, we're going to jump. I think we should jump straight in for the reason why we've asked you to come along this week. Yeah, um, and that is to send you to a desert island and ah, uh, away from home. yes um so just for we've i think you're the fourth person we've sent to the island yes uh, yeah yeah so so, eric yeah or Paris, and on mystery eh? i'm there. there and animal mystery is there as well mm -hmm. 
So, and also that's three. You're so, the fourth. I'm fourth. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty good company. It wow. is. It is. Oh, wow. So, now. Yeah. So just just for those people who are not unfamiliar with uh, with desert island lenses, the, there is a little bit of a story that goes with this. Um, so I'll just and this is the brief that we we send that uh, send to our guests, and uh, it goes like this. So uh, your ship, uh, which is known as the SS Tessar, um, has capsized and sunk. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Tessars, but Tessars are perfectly good lenses, honestly. Um, and. <laughs> Uh, so after so after encountering that freak waves it lies it now lies deservedly no i didn't say deservedly did i um it lies at the bottom of the sea um and you're being washed ashore on an amazing island uh, that has every every photographic opportunity available to you so you can do street shots and everything you know it's not really a desert island um but the island is equipped with um, a powered dark cave and you've also got solar powered computer so you can run whatever processing software you've you've you have and you have a uh, a a full selection of lens adapters if you wish so alongside you a trunk has been washed ashore and it has two camera bodies um, of your choice uh, digital analog or either or both and uh, along with three lenses that you've actually managed to pick from your collection so these are three lenses that you own so the the questions from this and there's two questions um, so what are the three lenses uh, that you have brought with you and why so I suppose that's technically two questions. And then the other one is if you've got a free, a free choice to bring one more lens, what would that be? So let's, let's go back to uh, talk about the camera. Actually, let's talk about the cameras you're going to, you've brought along with you first, and then we'll talk about the lenses. Oh, okay. I forgot about the cameras. I was like focusing on the lenses. Um, okay. For cameras, I'm just, um, for the exercise of the desert island lens, I'm just going to go for the contacts aria because that thing is like just idiot proof. And I guaranteed, unless I stuff up and get my out of focus, I always get perfect exposure. And it's just easy to use, beautiful, tactile. Love that camera. I've had lots and lots and lots of cameras. Um, which I enjoy using, some vintage ones, really old ones. But for testing lenses, and I do like lens reviews, I'll just put it on the RE because I know I don't have to worry about the exposure or anything. I'm just going to be getting what the lens is going to give me, not any of my screw-ups or under or overexposure or any of that. It's like as long as I've got the focus nailed, I'm going to get the shot with the Aria. So that, and I've got the rare um 70th anniversary edition which is one of the very last contacts it's the second the second last contacts camera that was ever made um and they really really put their heart and soul into making that camera and it's got so many really really cool features and i did a really good review which you can read on casual photophile with all the history and and simon likes that because there's lots of tie-ins about Contacts is Shika and the Contacts is Shika lenses, and that's a whole another rabbit hole we could go down. So that's my camera. Okay, so you're not not taking a digital camera with you? I don't own a digital camera. <laughs> okay, um, fair enough. <laughs> I just, yeah, I just. Um, okay, so I had, um, as we discussed before, I grew up with film. I, I, for 10 years, I was selling private islands all over the world and I would fly by helicopter or seaplane 
Um, I'll go visit by boat and um, I had a Canon camera and really good lenses and I would just always nail the shots I wanted and, um, yeah, I was an expert with a circular polarising filter and shooting in the tropics and that's how you get good photographs. All my photographs of islands from all over the world are still mostly online all over the place. Um, um, but I got sick of digital and I got sick of digital because uh, I was taking photographs of my daughter and they just, they're just, they were just kind of lifeless. And it, it, it was great for when I was using them for my business, but when I wanted pictures of my daughter, um, Jay, uh, uh, Hamish Gill and um, uh, a few other people have talked about this at, the same thing, like they wanted to, photographs of their kids and they took digital photographs and it didn't like look like the photographs they had when they were kids and that's because they're all around my age and they grew up with film and they kind of wanted that and I did that and I went back to film and I had film cameras and digital cameras um, and I did that whole thing starting around 2010 um, I learned really, really early on there was an a article in the New York Times in, I think it was 2010, I remember really vividly about all these crazy people that put old lenses on new digital cameras. I thought, well, wow, that's really, like, counterintuitive. That sounds pretty cool. And and I tried it, and it was back then it was very few people doing it, and it was kind of hard to find information. And I found a guy who adapted some lenses for me for Canon, but like um, it's a bit, it was a bit of a pain, but I liked it. And then I thought, well, I may as well just go back to getting film cameras and shooting with film because I don't have to buggerize around with the adaption and adapters and stuff, which is great for Simon because his business, how he makes money. But I just went back to film cameras. And then finally I had a, um, I had a digital camera with like live view, like, like what Perry was talking about before and it drove me absolutely frigging mental. I hate electronic viewfinders with a passion. I, like I grew up with film cameras and a nice viewfinder. My main camera that I shot with for many, many years was a Minolta X700, and the Minolta X700 is pretty well regarded because it's got a really, really good viewfinder. The Contax Aria is even better. It's like 97%, um, and it's one of the best ever made. Um, that's what another reason I love the Aria. And so um, I just the electronic viewfinder thing and all the adaption, I just went, screw it. I'll just go full film and that's where I'm at now. And I don't have the digital camera, not even a cheap one. Um, the only thing I have for taking digital photographs, which I'm ashamed to admit is my daughter's phone, <laughs> which I use to take the digital photographs for the articles that I write. So um there you go. That's why I don't have a digital camera anymore. Not that I'm against digital. It's just I um, I wear glasses and I found the whole electronic viewfinder thing that the digital cameras have now, I just found it really, really annoying. And I know that there's like cameras now, they've got like the, um, what is it, the Fuji X-Series, which have got the kind of part live and part digital viewfinders, which are interesting, but I just... I'm happy with film, so that's where I'm at. Well, I, I'm, I'm certainly, I certainly like your choice of, of cameras uh, there. Uh, been a, actually, Perry and I are both 
contacts fans anyway because as anybody listened yeah. to, the, to the show that we did on contacts cameras and we just went on and on and on to the point where uh, johnny yeah. went off to do housework whatever he does when he disappears yeah <laughs> so it's uh, yeah yeah hey johnny i mean you know you know it's true that, that we talk about we talk about our rangefinders. i talk about my leicas a lot but my favorite slr for actual use is my contacts s2 um, which is yeah, similar to the Aria in many ways, certainly visually. Uh, and my I, favorite, I have, to, I have to admit, it's a better camera. The S2 is a much better camera than the Aria for sure. I just like the fact that it's all mechanical, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and that's a cool thing, yeah. It's the only one, and and then my by far my favorite pocket camera is the Contax T, yeah. Uh, that's in my yeah, bag, I mean, like. 80% of the time. Yeah, and I, oh, good I, I remember them back in the day and I just even, so like I bought and sold a lot of film cameras over the years, like people my age and every once in a while, you know, every couple of years, you know, you go to the camera shop and you look at the new cameras and, and I'd like, you know, trawl and research and, and I like, I remember the contacts back in the day and they were just, way too expensive and now they're way too, even more way too expensive and they've got digital failure so um or what do you electronic failure to deal with so yeah, yeah i can't i can't um yeah I'll be, I, i'm not going to get a contacts t so you're lucky you have one yeah yeah i think with the case of contacts cameras if it, if, if it interests you to to get one uh get one while they're still working um and then hopefully you'd, don't pay too much for them as well. But actually, the, yeah. the SLRs well, aren't that expensive, most of them at least. Anyway, some are certainly more desirable than others, but some of them are, are, are pretty reasonably priced. Well, I think the Contact X2, S2 that Perry's got, I reckon that's really, really undervalued. Because like, if you look, it's got all of the things that Contax has in the T, in the T2 and the T-series the that everybody's paying a fortune for, but it's fully mechanical and it will never fail. And you can use fantastic like Zeiss lenses on it. I mean, that's yeah. crazy. You can pick up an S2 for like a cheap one, five, 600 bucks, one in probably good condition, a bit more than that, um, and a couple of lenses thrown in for half the price you're going to pay for a Contax T2. I reckon they're like a fantastic investment. I've got my yeah. friend Anthony Rue in Florida. and Oh, um, he loves it, yeah. Yeah, because I sent him the catalogue. <laughs> I've got the original dealer's catalogue for the S2. Oh, man, that's a sexy catalogue. <laughs> He's like into Voigtlander. I said, yeah, Voigtlander, yeah, check this out. He says, oh, I've got to have one. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and he went, through a whole, he went through a whole series of like getting broken ones and broken lenses, but – now he's got a working one, and yeah, he really, really loves it. So he's also got an SX as well now. I've noticed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, let's uh, let's let's move it on from from contacts, and let's let's talk about the the, the lenses. lenses. So, so what's the first lens that you're going to pull out of your uh, trunk? Okay, so uh, I'll go from number three to number one. So starting off at number three in my classic iron lenses is a lens now what are we talking about with lens build okay so the biotar 58 millimeter and perry was saying about the lens build and i said i can top that okay the lens that tops the build quality of the carl zeiss jenner uh, 5.8 centimeter f2 lens with 17 blades which i have and it's really beautiful is the schneider kreuznach um uh hang on, let me think it is 
God, is it 50 mil? Oh, I'm going brain jets really late here. Um, it's the 50 millimeter f2.8, and it's got 15 aperture blades. But the difference why I would choose that lens over the Carl Zeiss Jenner with the 17 blades is the build quality is like the biotire pumped up to like 11 or 12. It's really, really heavy brass with solid hard chrome plating. So it's the shiny chrome. It's not the what they used to call. There was two kinds of chrome in the camera days. You had satin chrome, which most of the 60s, 70s Japanese cameras had. It's kind of like a matte finish. And then you have a hard chrome, which is kind of like chrome you get on bumper bars of old 1950s cars like I grew up with. So the hard chrome is really hard. It's made by a different process and it's really shiny and it just feels like a battleship and it's super engineered. It's like, man, that thing is really heavy. It's um, And you just pick it up in your hand and it's beautiful. It doesn't have 17 blades like the Biotar. It doesn't have the really crazy swirly bokeh and all the kind of stuff that you get with the Biotar. And I have the Biotar and I love it. But I'll choose this lens over the Biotar because the sharpness and the color rendition. So the this camera, is the te- just to clarify, this is the Tessar, uh, the Xenar. Yeah, no, no, yeah, no, yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's um it's it's the five element Tessar. I forgot to add that. Sorry. So it's the Zenar, which the Zenar Zenar was uh, Schneider's um, rebadging of Tessar. Um, and most, uh, lots of, there were co- lots of copies made of the Tessar and we all know Simon's opinion of the Tessar, but this is a five element Tessar and it was only made for a very pre- brief period of time and only in a few, Schneider made lots of OEM lenses. So they made some for, um, Edixa cameras. They made some for, uh, the Contax S series um they made some for in dkl mount for some others but it's really really rare this early chrome version and um the reason i would choose it over the the biotar even though it's a tessar um uh, is that it's just got beautiful beautiful color rendition and you have all the really good things about the 17 blade biotar but just nicer like so in the 17-blade biotar, you've got the, the, the bokeh is really kind of extreme, and some people like that. But a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, it's too swirly, and it's too this, and it's too that. So the, the Zenar has got a beautiful soft bokeh, but it's not swirly. It's just got a little bit of swirl. So it's not disconcerting, and it's not over-exaggerated like some people say that the biotar is. But probably the best reason... Choosing between the 17 blade Biotar and the 15 blade Zenar is the color rendition. So, I used to shoot a lot of Agfa Ultra 100. And for people that shoot digital aren't really familiar with film, um, most people would have heard of Fuji Velvia 50. So, you got that really bright, vibrant colors. Well, Agfa Ultra 100 was the negative version of, of Fuji's positive film. Um, and it's like all the colours are dialed up to 11 and, you know, really contrasty, really bright colours. I know people don't like that. I do like that. And 
what happens is if I get an ordinary bog standard um, roll of, of Kodak Ektar 100 and I shoot it with the Schneider Kreuznach Zenar, um, it, it looks exactly like Agfa Ultra. It's super contrasty. It's super bright colours. It's just absolutely knocks your socks off. It's a beautiful lens. And I think it's Mike Novak has got one on his Adixa camera and he's shot some on black and white and really, really sharp, really, really sharp, stopped down a little bit on black and white, just a really fantastic lens. Sadly for most people hearing, listening to this podcast, it's pretty rare and it's hard to find, but you do come across them on eBay. But often the sellers don't realise what it is and they won't describe it properly. So you've really got to ask a lot of questions and the different versions of the Zenar. There, there were several versions of the F2.8 Zenar and the 15-blade version looks really similar. So you really, really got to know what you're looking for to, to so find that lens. Yours is an M42 mount, right? Correct. Is it is this the same uh, five element Zenar that you find on the uh, the carrot cameras? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think so. And they also made a medium format version um, of the five oh. element uh, the five element Zenar. It, um, so the 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 medium format version was made. Um, uh, they sold it as an OEM lens for um, Serto used it. And a few other like folding cameras had it prior to World War II. And then after World War II, I think it was 1949, 1950, um, they used the lens scheme for the five element Zenar and made it into a 35 millimeter version. And the first version was the lens that I've got. Um, mm. And I think it was probably just too expensive to make. And then they, they went back to making the regular four element Tassar. But even the four-element Tessa F2.8, any Schneider lens is not as good as this. They're still really, really lovely lens. I mean, Schneider Kreuznach is really underrated, I reckon. And um, that F2.8 um, four-element Tessa that they made um, was their version of the F2.8 version that was recalculated after World War II by, um, by Zeiss. And um, so there was kind of like a battle out at the time to make fast 50-millimeter lenses. And the first post-war fast 50-millimeter lenses um, were Zeiss's F2.8 Tessa and Schneider's F2.8 Zenar. And I would say that the Zenar is probably better than the Zeiss lens, although probably people would argue with me about that. But I love it, and that's my opinion. So that's my number three. You know, one of the one of the easier ways to potentially get this lens, if the one you've got is fairly rare, yeah, um, is, the, is to find a or yeah. to find a carrot uh, with this Zenar and rip it off. And because, then adapt it to digital, yeah, yeah, because these um, the the Schneider and the Rodenstock lenses that are on the the carrot series, yeah, I find are some of the most beautiful rendering lenses when you adapt them to digital. Yeah, and, they're, and really, they're really good lenses. Really, they're stunning. Really good lenses. But as you were saying earlier, they 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 look totally different on film, um, but that camera has a few limitations in its use that makes it fairly impractical. And yeah. so I, I'm, I've actually been looking for quite a while uh, for broken carrot, uh, Agfa carrots with 
with good lenses because I think these these are just unbelievable lenses on on these weird yeah. little uh, fixed lens rangefinders. Yeah, that's cool. So I didn't even know they made that M42 and five element. It's really rare. I think they only made it for like two or three years, and uh, I think that they like we were discussing before. It was post-war and they just kind of a lot of the design and manufacture and um the materials of of this 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 zener is pre-war so and it's just too expensive um and so um post world war ii in east germany and west germany pretty quickly they went over to making all the lenses out of aluminium barrels because um brass was it all being taken up during the war, you just couldn't get brass. It was too expensive. Um, and so that's why most of the post-war East and West German lenses are made out of aluminium because mm. they just literally couldn't get brass and they couldn't get steel. So um, th- that's what I think happened with this lens. It was the chrome was expensive. So chrome was is like a precious metal at the time post-World War II. It was really, really hard because it had to come from overseas all, all would have been held by the military during the war and after the war for three or four years they still had rationing so all of the camera companies in um, in Germany and even in England England had a really really hard time producing cameras um, but the only reason there was cameras made in England during that period was because there was huge export taxes on German cameras so for a little while they had cameras like the um, the Ilford Witness, and you know, there was oh, also really, oh, love that camera, yeah. <laughs> but they only were capable of being made because they didn't have to compete with German cameras because German cameras were taxed like mental taxes on them. So, um, but the English struggled to make cameras for the same reasons the Germans because they really struggled to get the, the materials necessary. So that's why this lens and some other lenses that were made kind of between 1946 up to about 1950. They just quickly disappeared because they're just t- too expensive to make. They're just not profitable. That Ilford Witness camera you just mentioned is one of the cameras yeah. I want the most. But because it, <laughs> it's got the freaking lens on it. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> mostly for the lens, but it also has an, a ridiculous base length. I almost bought one for five hundred dollars. What? I'm, I'm kicking myself. I didn't buy it. it. Was it was on. It was on Gumtree, the English version of Gumtree, and mostly, like, I, I go, when I want to find a camera, like, I look at all these really obscure places. And Wait, with I, the lens or body? Body on? The whole thing, the whole kit, the, the leather, oh the camera case, the box, the whole thing, $500, and somebody didn't know what it was. It was like their dad had died. They had a whole lot of crap, and I, and I always see an ad and someone says, oh, deceased estate or dad died. I go back and look at all the other listings, and then when I went through, they had the witness, and unfortunately like this was like four years ago and i kind of knew about it and i kind of knew it was rare but not enough to know to buy it Dude, <laughs> it's I, like a it's like a twenty thousand yeah. dollar lens well now uh, camera but, sorry yeah yeah but back then yeah four, yeah four or five years ago they were they weren't worth that much money they were i think they were going back then like maybe two or three or four thousand um but, um, yeah, and I just bought something else and I was like, oh, if I spend that $500 and is it – it just wasn't, like, on my radar enough to buy it. Mm-hmm. And then later on I kind of did some research and went back to get it and somebody had already <laughs> got it. <laughs> yeah. 
So, yeah, know that camera very well, and, yeah, I'd love to get it just for the lens. Um, and plus it's a really cool-looking camera. It is. And, yeah, and it's really great history, really interesting, the people that designed it. That, that's, like, that's that camera epitomized everything I love about vintage cameras. Yeah. Really cool lens, takes fantastic images. Um, my friend in Tasmania had the, um, that same lens, but um, – what was you're it? You're talking about the Dalmeyer Super 6 2-inch yeah. F1.9, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He had it on an Alpha, and he just took a few photos with it, and he was like, he got an insane amount of money when he sold that. He put it, there was Alpha with that lens, and he put it on starting at 99 cents, <laughs> and he got 380 bids, and it sold for 8,000 Australian dollars. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, he's starting at 99 cents. Are you mental? And he said, mate, I'm selling this to people in Hong Kong, and the more people I get being, the, more, the higher the price will go. And I was like, yeah. that's crazy. Man, I couldn't do that. And he knew. He just knew the market. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it sold to somebody in Hong Kong. So somebody will show that off to you one day, Perry. Oh, it's so popular. <laughs> it's so popular here for those who have are lucky enough to get their hands on it. Yeah. It's just – yeah, it's – it's yeah, it's just uh, – um, it is a really, really beautiful lens, but yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't afford to, to buy one of those. And yeah, I'm stupid. Like I should have bought that friggin' witness when I saw it for five hundred bucks. But say la vie. I mean, the gods of camera hunting and lens hunting have smiled on me. I got my Bolsi camera. We'll have a chat about that later. Um, and um, I got my Biotar seventy-five um, millimeter Biotar for a ridiculously low amount of money and one day i'll come back on the podcast and talk about with perry i uh, sorry with with johnny because johnny helped me get it so there's like a whole like real long story about yeah he's told that story yeah it's a cool story it's really yeah. i've still got the receipt subsequently i've sold that 75 millimeter biotar and that's like a whole other story so we'll save that for some other time um so moving on to lens number two now I, lens number one's really easy so lens number two was a bit harder. Um, I was thinking of, um, I, I, you know, I've had quite a few lenses um, and I've sold and bought them and written reviews and then sold it to buy another lens and buy another lens and buy another lens and I'm buying and selling all the time and I don't really hang on to other lenses um, and I really like um, Schneider um and I really like the um, the Xenon lens and the Ultron lens. And uh, so there's several different versions of the Ultron. And um, the Japanese copied the Ultron formula. And um, probably one of the best um, Ultron variations is um, the eight-element um, Practica um, that was only produced in really, really small numbers, and it was produced with um, uh, the special glass. Um, and what happened was, for the same reason as the Zenar, it was too expensive, and that lens is um, is now selling for like huge amounts of money. Especially if it's in the M forty two version, they made it in in a few versions, um, but there. They followed that lens with another Practica, which is basically the same um, optical design with all the same elements and everything, except it didn't have the thorium glass. 
um, which made it cheaper. And there's a little bit of difference in the body design of the lens. But so basically, that lens was made in Practica bayonet mount, which is basically really hard to find adapters for. And you can get adapted to digital, but shooting film, I'd have to shoot it on a Practica camera. And the Practica cameras are. Yeah. A lot of them around, but they're mostly really unreliable and I know they're kind of plasticky looking and, frankly, they're really ugly. And so then I came across a guy in the Ukraine and he had um, made the first one in the world that he'd, as a kind of a test bed thing, like to show off how great he was as a lens mechanic and he had modified it to M42 and I was like, I pounced on it. <laughs> so um, the Practica... Um, the really expensive version, um, I just couldn't float that kind of money for a 50mm f1.4 lens. I just thought it's just collectability and it's, yeah, it's got thorium glass and it's really nice and everything. And I've got a few friends um, on Facebook that have actually had two versions and they've got, they had the version that I've got and they had the really expensive one and they, they all said, yeah, the, the the other one is is pretty good. In fact, actually, I prefer it. And I was like, so I pounced on it and I bought that. And that's the 50 millimeter f 1.4 um, Practica, and it's got the Ultron design. And um, now it's f 1.4, but the really weird thing is that I used to have the Minolta 58 millimeter f 1.2, and I get nicer images out of this Practica at f1.4 than I did out of the Minolta at f1.2. And that's really strange and it doesn't kind of make sense, but it all comes it does, down does to, to me. It. <laughs> yeah, it makes yeah, total it, sense. Yeah, it's because, of the, it's because of the lens formula design, yeah, of course. Like if you just think, well, fast, that's why people are like, oh, you know, I said Biotar um, f2 and you said, oh, yeah, there's, there's a 0.7. Yeah, it's like fast is not always everything. So, yeah. um, totally. so there's, there's also the, the I haven't I haven't um, beaten up uh, Minolta's and Rockhorts for a while, but that's the other reason, of course. Well, they, they, weigh, they weighed a ton. Yeah, I mean, I, I bought one and it was really, really lovely. And um, I, I, but it limited, you know, there's only limited things you can shoot with it. Like, you know, if you want to shoot flowers, great, you can use that lens all day. If you're, want to shoot portraits, it's shoot, you know, it's beautiful. But I live in a small town, there's 100,000, 120,000 people and there's no professional models here really. So basically to get girls model for me, I have to go in Facebook groups and advertise and get them to come FTP and, and you know, half the time they don't turn up or they turn up late or they're grumpy or, um, yeah, it's just, it's like herding cats. Um, and I've got some girls I work with now and they're reliable and, I say, you know, be here at a certain time, they'll be here. But often it's really a drama. And um, and so I just don't have the opportunity to shoot a lot of portraits. I'm not a professional photographer. Photography is my hobby. If I was, like, in a big city and, um, you know, I could have expensive portrait lenses and, yeah, I'd get a digital camera because that's what people want. And I'd do portraits and I'd probably um, maybe, you know, do weddings if I had to. <laughs> I don't know. Um but where I am, it's not really possible and it's not feasible. So I sold the 58mm f1.2 Minolta for the same reason that I sold the 75mm um, f1.5 Biotar. I 
just didn't get enough opportunity to realistically use it. And I have to be really careful because I live in the tropics. I live in Cairns, um, which is, I think it's 12 degrees of latitude and it's starting to be summer here now. And we get, it's kind of like 35, 36, 38 degrees with 95, 98% humidity for about four or five months. And so basically I live oh, in a yeah. fungus warren and I already started to get fungus in that 75 mil biotar and I sent it to my friend to do a CLA and he cleaned it and he got the little bit of tiny, tiny fungus out of it. And I just, at the same time, I was contacted by, um, like, there's hundreds of them running around Hong Kong, but we've got a few in Australia, rich Chinese guy that's got five different Leicas and all these really expensive lenses and limitless budget. And he just said, I'll pay, I'll pay, I'll pay. And so I sold the Biotar for 4000 Australian dollars. Um, and that was... Yeah, it was a really, really good deal, and I made really good money on it, and I used that to buy some other cameras. And, yeah, I'm not precious about things. You know, I, I really, really love it. I, if I was had lots of models and I lived in a big city and I could go and do street photography all the time, I would have hung on to it, but I just couldn't have a lens that was worth $4,000 sitting here in my house, af deathly afraid it would get fungus in it and f*** it. Excuse my language. So, um so yeah, I just I bought I bit the bullet and I needed the money and um, yeah, it allowed me to buy some other cool stuff. So that's lens number two. Do and you do you have a dry cabinet? I do, and I actually got I've got um, silica gel and I also got special fungus stuff, which yeah. I learned um, because Japan has it because they've got high humidity, but in Australia and most Western countries, they're like ah oh, silica gel, silica gel. But yeah, well it doesn't kill fungus. It lowers the humidity but when the humidity is so high like we've got here like 95 98 percent for months on end what happens is so to the listeners so i'll explain what it's like where i live uh, this is how to kill a lens if i had my camera setups uh, put my 75 millimeter f1.5 biota on my aria and i put it in a bag and i hop in my car and i turn the air conditioning on in the car and I drive for half an hour to go to the <laughs> shoot. And I open the car door, zoom, all that humidity just gets sucked straight into the lens. Yep. And if you've been in air conditioning and you wear glasses and you walk outside in Hong Kong and the glasses fog up, that's what happens to your lens. And mm -hmm. man, you cannot get that humidity out. And once that humidity and the moisture is inside, it's like the fungus are like, hello, holiday. Yeah. <laughs> and basically, um, yeah, lens kaput. So um, you have to put it in the boot. And if you, I take lenses out during the really, really high humidity, um, I've got to be really careful not to let them sit in the sun because if they're in the sun and the camera and the lens gets hot and then you go in the shade and you shoot, that's enough to suck the humidity in. Um, so, yeah, I've got the special fungus stuff as well as a silica gel and a dry cabinet, and that's – probably even still not enough so not the best place in the world to live if you like old lenses but salivy just as uh, a, i feel that i was gonna say just as a point sean um if it's possible if you've got any links to that product i do yeah um, okay so for the listeners um this is how you find it, it um it's really you have to do a little bit of searching on ebay it's japanese sellers sell it and it's called hakuba h-a-k-u-b-a hakuba antifungal and it's kind of like a square packet 
and I'll try and give Simon a link so you can find it. And it's actually, if you live anywhere where you've got probably above 55, 60% humidity, you really and you've got expensive lenses, you should have an antifungal. And what it is, it's um, it releases like a, kind of like a vapor, a slow release vapor that's kind of toxic to the fungus and actually prevents it growing and kills it. So it's like a hundred percent. So yeah. like having a dry cabinet and silica gel is is only like ninety percent, and it's like condoms. Um, all you need is one percent to get pregnant. So you don't want to get your nice lenses pregnant, screwed up, destroyed. You, yeah. So get the antifungus stuff. It's great. Great, good tip. Great that's, tip. That's really helpful. Yeah, I, I'm totally gonna get that because I mean, you don't, you don't have that's what we get here. You got high humidity. You don't have the antifungal stuff. No, I have a dry cabinet for my expensive stuff, and then I use a dehumidifier in the room. But you don't have the antifungal stuff. No, no, you I get was it, not man. aware. Oh, I'm totally gonna get it now. Yeah, oh, because, yeah, because if you got humidity, it's the, same. the humidity when you as soon as you take the camera and lens out of the dry cabinet, take it outside and go for a photo walk and do some photographs. Even a little bit of humidity will get in there is enough. Oh yeah, and even yeah. the tiniest, tiniest bit. Fungus is like tiny. It just needs like minuscule amounts of moisture. And like I explained with the air conditioning and stuff, even if you walk into a hotel, you know, with the camera in your bag mm -hmm. and then you go outside, that's enough. So, yeah. yeah. It's totally happened to me. I mean, we get 95% humidity average in the summers as well. Yep. And, yep. you know, every now and then I will just walk up to one of my old cameras on my shelf, take a look at how it's doing and boom, fungus. Yeah. So we'll get this stuff and I'll give Simon the link to get it. And uh, you can only get it in Japan. They they were making they were making it in um, the States, uh, like back in the 70s and the 80s, but the manufacturer went kaput. So Japan's the only place you can get it. And it's Hakuba is like a really big manufacturer in Japan and they make all tripods and all sorts of doodads and bits and pieces. So they're going to be around for a long time and it is easy to get off regular eBay from sellers in Japan and it's not expensive. I think it's, I think it's like 12, I paid 12 Australian dollars for a packet of four. So it nice. costs peanuts. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really helpful. Yeah. And one packet, like one packet, like um, if you've got like the little mini bar fridge um, kind of dehumidifying cabinets, yeah. one of those packets is supposed to last for 12 months. So like $12 is like four years supply practically. Oh, sweet. Okay. Yeah. They cost, they, You'd be criminal not to have them, seriously. If you go anywhere there's humidity, um, you really should have it. Oh, I, and if, I guess and I'm if traveling, like, If you're traveling and you're going to go like somewhere like the tropics or you're going to go to Bali or you're going to go to the Caribbean or go somewhere on a holiday, take it along. Take a little, um, you know, one of those um, um, fridge things that, you know, got the seals in them. Put your lenses in there with the silica gel and the antifungus while you're traveling because that's – that's where you're going to get your fungus. And people just forget they go on holidays and, you know, they haven't got the dry cabinet and they just forget. If, take your kit, put all your lenses in that, and then your right is rain and they're protected as much as you can. Excellent. Sweet. Excellent. So, uh, right, we've had uh, two interesting two. lenses. Um, Are we only on to the last one? Yeah. Let's so, um, we've already really talked about that um, a bit, sorry. Um, my number one lens, of course, is the 75 uh, Carl Zeiss Jenner 75 millimeter f1.5 Biotar. 
and that was my lens lust for a really, really, really long time. And it took me a long, long time to hunt one down because I first probably learnt about that lens about five years ago. Cheyenne, uh, Cheyenne, yeah? you don't own yeah. that lens anymore. Sold it. That's right. So you're not allowed to talk about it. Am I not? No. I, I read the rules in like you have owned it. No, 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 no. You have owned. Like uh, I think it's okay. I'll accept it. In in this case, we're going to let you off. And if I do need to tighten up the rules, I will do. So there you go. Um, Perry's letting you do it. You had to have owned it. Didn't say you have to have to have own it right now. I was going to say, seeing that we've got three pedantic people on the podcast, let's just read this out. Um, a trunk is just washed ashore and it contains two camera bodies, uh, your choice, digital or analog or both, along with three lenses you would have picked from your collection. Mm. There you go. Well, anyway, Perry's been really nice and he's letting you do this. So uh, there you go. You've got to buy on this one. Okay. Okay. Scratch buy. Okay. So um, I wrote a really, really long article about this lens and um, I had some people that I readily admit are much better photographers than me. Um, And it helps if you live in really cool places like Poland and Czechoslovakia, where all the girls are drop dead gorgeous. Um, and I, a lot of people who shot that lens lent me some of their photography for the article. So um, that was published on Casual Photophile as well, the, um, the article about that lens. And there's a lot of lenses that get a lot of hype. Um, and that's one of the few lenses that I think most people agree that it's deserving of the hype. People yeah. that are collectors, hype it because it's kind of like rare and special and hard to get and all that sort of stuff. I liked it because it just produces really, really, really beautiful images. And as we discussed when we were talking earlier, you know, Perry and I were chatting about the, the 58 millimeter biotar versus the 75. Well, it's not dialed up to 11. It's probably, you know, dialed up to 200%. The difference between, and I, I love the, 17 blade 58 mil biotype really really lovely lens but the images that you get out of the 75 millimeter are just a whole different scale and uh, now johnny's not here so we can use the b word instead of saying ufta um now Bocky's kind of hyped and overrated and um I think it's become kind of like a bit of a cliche with some people that, you know, especially like soap bubble bocker or boker or whatever you want to call it. I don't really get the thing with the soap bubble. It's kind of like a trick. And so mm-hmm. cool. Okay. It's bubbles, right? Okay. There's a flower and it's surrounded by bubbles. That's great. Um, the biotar has kind of got the nice, funky, swirly bokeh, but especially on film, and we, we, Simon and I discussed this already, but I'm sticking to this. Um, I've seen lots and lots of pictures of it on digital, and I did a lot of research before I bought this lens, and I was probably reading about it and looking at people's photographs and talking to people on Facebook who had it for about five years. And then when I got it and I shot it, and I shot it on film, I was really, really, really shocked, but in a good way. And what I learned was that, all the 
images that I saw, which that lens has kind of become famous for, is like the Helios. Kind of, it, it's got, um, and there's the Helios 40, which is kind of like the Soviet version of this lens. The swirly bokeh with the real sharply defined bokeh balls. Um, but if you shoot it on film, you get the swirly bokeh, but the bokeh balls are much softer. They're not mm-hmm. like really sharp and hardly defined. And it's really beautiful on film. And that's what it was designed for. And that's, I think, when they made the lens, that was what they designed it to be shot on film. And that's the look that photographers that it was shooting with at the time, that's what they would have been looking for to shoot portraits with. They would have, they weren't back then, they did, the word bokeh didn't exist. But the concept of bokeh did exist and it was called out-of-focus area rendition and they had words for it in German, which I'm not going to even try and pronounce. But photographers in the 30s, um, there were special lenses like the Lights Thambar. Ah. Yeah. Yeah, you know about this one, Perry. So um, portrait photographers in the 30s were really, really highly paid and uh, they got huge publicity and they did the famous for you know, studio portrait photography for the, the glamour film stars in the 1940s and the 50s. And and they wanted really, really special lenses, especially on large format. Simon would know about those kind of lenses. There was, uh, I think, the Wallensack made a soft focus lens, didn't they, Simon? There's a, yeah, there's they, a few out there. In particular, the most, yeah. I think the most famous one's probably by Cook. Yeah. But, but basically what the photographers are trying to get that was the person's face in really, really sharp, focus with a real soft glow around it um mm-hmm. and what they used to do was they would do special lighting um studio lighting mm-hmm. and there was um a few famous photographers in hollywood um and you've got a few in england and there was um some in france there's a studio in france that still exists and they'd kind of put um uh two pin lights in the front and then have a backlight behind the person on a black wall so there'd be like like a halo behind them. So it would really, you take that, what we call 3D pop nowadays, and really, really amp that up to 11 to get like this kind of hallucinatory kind of 3D effect of the person just being really sharply in focus, but in kind of like a like an angelic halo. And that's, you know, so th- they went for special lenses to do that. And, of course, the cheap version was Vaseline <laughs> or um, yeah. stocking, women's stockings um, and all sorts of other tricks. But the guys that had money, they would buy the lenses and and um, and that's what the 75mm um, Carl Zeiss Jenner Biotar was developed and it was developed um, and it was advertised as for theatre and portrait photography. And they advertised it as for theatre photography because it was fast, it was f one5 so there was very few lenses at that time that were like below f2 f2 f2.8 was fast as we discussed with my Zena. f2.8 in a 35 millimeter lens was fast after world war ii so f2 was really fast and f1.5 was like just like magical so you could literally shoot like period is discussing in the dark so um because at the time, all they had was like 25 or 50 um, ASA or ISO film speeds. So the film was really, really slow and you, you needed that extra speed with the lens to shoot, you know, at night as well. 
So I don't. Um, I don't think you should. I, I don't think you should mention uh, the seventy-five Viatar in the same breath as the lights Thambar, though, because to me. Oh no! The I meant just that, 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 they were just like studio photography for portraits. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. Wanted, they wanted to go for a soft focus effect. But so I, I mean, the Thambar produces a completely different effect than the Biotar. Right. The point. The point I'm trying oh, to make yeah. is, I, I think the Biotar is the almost like the quintessential classic lens. You know, if someone with un, actually this happened quite recently, one of my friends who, let's just say price is not really an issue for him um and he shoots mostly modern lenses but he asked me if if i had to recommend him one classic lens with the most sort of lovely unique vintage rendering what would it be and without hesitation i was like 75 biotar whereas the thambar i think is an abomination yeah and <laughs> uh, even, and even you, if the most people grade that you, you have to you have to light a photo perfectly for the thambar to look good and it actually does take a lot of, um, I mean, I've seen like a handful of photos with it that look good, but it, like it really is lighting dependent. If you take regular photos with a fan bar, it just looks like you've smeared Vaseline everywhere on your subject as well, not just on your lens. It's, it's, yeah, it's it was not specifically a, yeah. designed for studio photography yeah. with specific types of lighting and specific yeah. types of film. Right. Because back then they also used to use, they, they had... Um, Oh, uh, God, I get mixed up. It's like, is it orthochromatic film or the, the one that didn't have very much in the UV spectrum? So they had slow film and they had, they had panchromatic film. And um, so the Thamba was designed to work with studio lighting, yeah. the type of film they had and what the effect that they were going for. And, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, it's, yeah, no comparison. I, I was only mentioning the Thamba because... Um, the, the portrait photography lenses were really, really expensive and only used by professional photographers back yeah. then, like prior I mean, to I, and post World War II. I, I'm glad this is coming out because Leica's own product photos, like sample photos that they issued when they re-released the Thambar, are uh, pictures of like their outdoor uh, pictures, and they look like crap. Yeah, yeah, vomiting into my mouth here about the re-release of the Thambar. <laughs> It's it's, <laughs> it's an absolute, problem. yeah. It's an abomination. That just, I man, I, I know you like Leica, and I'm you know, no, I'm not like this. The Leica files can shoot me, but I think that re-release of the Thambar is just epitomizes all the stupid crap that is happening at at Leica. Oh, I, I, mean, I completely agree. Oh man, like, it's like Leica, Leica boys. They just slap a red badge on anything, and we will pay a fortune for it, and just. Be, Okay, the the Thambar had an undeserved reputation because I I was reading up on studio photography in the original, you know, like popular photography magazine of 1939 and 1938 and, and people discussing the Thambar and people panned it. People said it's like a one-trick pony and all I've got to do is put Vaseline on the lens and what, they're going to charge me X amount of dollars? And the same thing is the new yeah. one. It's just crap. And the photographers at the time knew it was crap. But what Leica did, they're always really good at marketing. And so what they did was they got a couple of the really famous studio photographers in Hollywood and they gave them this lens and they said, listen, we're going to give you this lens and we'll, you know, we'll throw in a camera and rah, rah, rah. And all you got to do is hype the fact that you use this lens. And years later, the photographers came out and admitted that, well, it was a terrible lens to use and it was really only worked in specific lighting 
and you know it was really really hard to use and you know and yeah it was just a pain but they marketed it and it got the hype and so you know it's the triumph of um hype over substance like a today i think their biggest competitor is their own history and they have lost miserably because the the yeah the crap they're pumping out today is just i i i, I find it just so unpleasant um and the re-release of the fan bars is exactly what's wrong with this company today yeah well do, do the, the have you seen that new film ford versus ferrari i haven't seen it yet no okay go and see it because it epitomizes everything in that film what is wrong with Leica. so basically um the gist of the story is ferrari's won all these races forever wait and- spoiler alert I won't tell you the whole story. I won't. No, no, no. Yeah, I won't. No spoilers. No spoilers. Sorry, audience. Um, Henry Ford wants to beat him. I won't go into why. And he hires the best, like car designers, engine designers, engineers, rah, rah, rah. And they all doing their thing, and they're doing really good. But then the PR and marketing step in, and they try and everything up like they always do. Well, that's Leica. You know, it's like there's too many marketing and PR people making decisions about stuff they shouldn't be making decisions about. Right, it should stay the f away, and um, I'm not anti Leica because like I would love a Leica M3 or a Leica M2 and a whole stack of Leica lenses, but the problem is, is that um, all the Leica fanboys they're just like overhyped to crazy a crazy extent, where um, you know like even like a crappy Leica M3 in really bad condition is going to need a CLA is going for a thousand bucks. That's just mental. Right, there's plenty of other good cameras. With you know, it's not to say that Leica is not good, and they had some really, really great things. But um, it, they're not the pinnacle of camera stuff, and they certainly, in terms of lenses, they didn't have really good lenses, and they couldn't yeah. um, beat contacts until after World War Two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hang on. In fact, the the very first fast lens for Leica was the um, was Schneider Kreuznach. Um, Xenon, which they mm. produced in the um, 50 millimeter f1.5, and uh, the designer, because um, I've spoken to his family, I'm writing an article about the Ultron. I'll publish these photographs. He, to the to his dying day, he bitched about that because they produced that lens, and he was under pressure to produce it for lights to make a fast lens, and he knew that technology wasn't good enough. And shortly afterwards, Bertolet released the Sonar. And the Sonar completely eclipsed um, the Xenon. And the Xenon got a bad reputation, which didn't deserve. And that was kind of like um, his one kind of failure in his whole life that he always really regretted and complained about. Um, and that wasn't a good lens and he didn't like it. And that was the best lens that Lights had. So um, Contacts had all the really good lenses and you know, lights didn't get good lenses until well into the mid 1950s when the M3 came along. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot of hype about Leica and all this mythologization and um, and PR hype and all. And they claim, you know, the one that really bugs me is like all these famous photographers that they go on about using Leicas and they didn't actually use Leicas. Like Henry Cartier-Bresson, he used a, uh, you know, that, yeah, he had a Leica, but he had a um, he had a you know a Zeiss lens, 
He had these yeah. ice lens um, retrofitted to fit on it. And oh, that's, I mean, it's, yeah, you're bang on. You're absolutely bang yeah. on. Because, I mean, I, I, I love my Leicas. I have, I don't even know how many Leicas I have, I, but, um, oh. <laughs> sorry. But the, the, the lenses, I don't think they made a good, le- a truly good lens until the first Sumicron. And, you know, the Zeiss lenses, uh, yeah, the, the, the Japanese the LTM lenses, yeah. I think they just, they just, really wipe the floor with the lights lenses for the most part. The Sumicron is based on the Xenon anyway. Yeah, it's a, it's a double gauss. Yeah. 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 I mean, all, all they did was, um, so, because uh, I'm not really up on Leica, hang on. So they did the the 50mm F1.5 um, mm-hmm. Xenon, and then after World War II, all they did was they put a coating on it, and they renamed it, and was yeah, it the Sumicron? Sumicron. I can't remember. Uh, the Sumer, Sumerit. I do have that lens. Sumerit. Yeah, the Sumerit. Yeah, and actually, like, yeah, and um, I'm not really a Leica expert, but that's not got a really good reputation. Am I correct or not? Uh, yeah, it's it's soft, it's glowy, but it's, uh, you know, I have it for its character and it looks really nice, um, but okay. it's definitely not a good lens by any objective measure. Like the Xenon which is basically that is a Xenon, but the Xenon in like up by like, so my Zen R, which is the five element Tessar, yeah. is probably a better lens yes. than, than that lens in terms of image yeah. quality sharp. That's what you get, which is yes. Tessar. So that's really bad. <laughs> the interesting thing about the their Xenon is um, they licensed the design from, yeah, from Taylor Hobson. Yeah, because I think I'm I'm still researching the history of that because I'm doing my neck I'm doing another article on the Ultron. So mm. the Ultron it was the same designer as the Xenon, um, and uh, basically all of these lenses, like the formulas, are copied from other manufacturers. Um, and I think what happened was that um, they actually the, the they got a patent in the US and Germany for the Xenon and they claim, well, they got a patent. So obviously, you know, they claim they had invented it. Um, but I think what they re- must have realised was that if they were going to market it and put it on lights, Leica with, or Leica with lights lenses, um, and that light and Leica was selling in UK and the US, that they might get a trademark infringement. So I think what they did was they bit the bullet and they accepted that the that the xenon was based on the TTH, and um, some of those early lenses were um, badged um, TTH xenon, yeah. and then some of them were badged Schneider xenon. Um, but I think it wasn't. I think that's why they renamed it from xenon after World War Two as well to kind of get away from that. Although the sort design, of. I, yeah. The- the the sh- there were none of the um, light xenons badged with Schneider, but there was a Schneider fifty one point five xenon for like a thread mount, and that yeah, body looks quite different. And that one is crazy rare. I've held one that's, before. That's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah, that's I, super rare. I don't profess to be a like expert, so yeah, I'll, I'll accept your you're the expert on that one. But so that's uh, so that's my so we've been through the three. That's my number one lens, and now we come to the last lens. And Simon will like this because uh, 
Yeah, what were the rules again? Um, it's uh, well, basically, you've got unlimited budget, and it's any lens that you lust after. That's the one. And um, my last lens in the um, Tethered Iron series is the Aero Ektar, which yeah. Simon, yay! And so, Simon, I'll have a little bit of a chat about that because, as he discussed, he's just got his speed graphic because he had he got the Aero Ektar. Um, and then, like, finding a camera to fit the bloody thing is a whole yeah. another kettle of fish. Um, but the reason it would be the kind of kind of dream lens, like not the one that I would actually, like, go out and buy tomorrow, is that to shoot Aero Ektar, you have to have a camera that you can use it on, and it's a large format lens. So I'm going to speak to people and listening to the podcast who don't really know what their Aero Ektar is. So the Aero Ektar um, is a lens that was designed for shooting in um, World War II and there was a whole lot of lenses um, that were designed for aerial photography. So they needed um, large format lenses that were really, really fast because they were shooting they needed to be able to be shoot fast and they needed to be able to shoot in low light in all sorts of conditions. So uh, the British government and the United States government just prior to World War II um, put out um, kind of tenders for people to design these lenses for the cameras that they needed for aerial reconnaissance photography. And there was a whole variety of cameras and we won't go into that, but they're whopping great big things that um, – just monstrous size things and with these huge big lenses on the front. And the Aero Ektar is the most famous of those lenses. The Soviets produced one as well. And uh, there's one that the British made, and I just can't remember that one off the top of my head, but I think TTH made one, a British version that's similar to the Aero Ektar. But the reason they're famous is, is that people now um, modify them uh, and change them to work on um, the large format cameras that Simon's just got, the speed graphic. And my friend Sandy Fermester um, has been shooting an Aero Ektar on 4x5 with old expired film for about five years, I think. Sandy, don't shoot me if I'm wrong. Um, and what it's, it is, is like we've already discussed the image effects that you get from a 75mm biotar, well, that's a 35mm lens, and that's f1.5. So the Aero Ektar um, is a large format lens, and on a 35mm lens, what's that What's that equate to, Simon? It's Well, it's well. the actual focal length of the lens is 178mm, the Aero Ektar. But the, but the aperture on... Um, oh, 2.5. Like converted to 35 millimeter, what is it? Oof. It's like, I was gonna say, in terms of light gathering, you know, it's, a, it's an f2.5 yeah. lens, so it's it is just f2.5, but the depth of field is probably going to be comparable uh, to, to a 1.5 uh, because you, you've got that longer focal length, yeah. So basically, what you do is you, you've got you get a um, huge amount of light gathering with um crazy bokeh and razor, razor thin depth of field. I mean, 
Um, I think I read it somewhere, and like you could you could see it when, when people take photographs with it that if a person if it, like if there's a model in the photograph and their head's turned a little bit, um, like one eyelash will be in focus and the other eye will be out of focus. It's like mm-hmm. less than a centimeter or something. It and you just it just produces because everything on medium formats better than 35 mil and everything on large formats better than medium format and so the images that it produces are immediately recognizable once you've seen an image shot with an error ectar by somebody who knows how to use it and as simon was discussing there's um what's his name tillerman the guy that shoots like um he shoots pets of our lenses on eight by ten and that's kind of like the next level up from Aero Ektar. Yeah. But um, for readily available kind of, you know, you can buy these cameras already fitted out. You can buy speed graphics with um, the Aero Ektars already fitted to them and already modified. Or um, I think Hamish Guild didn't, wasn't it Hamish that M, wrote the series? M's got one and he, uh, M, yeah. M wrote the series on like how he modified one and, how he fitted it and all that sort of stuff. Sorry for mixing you up there, M with Hamish. Um, both my, two of my heroes, that's okay. Um, and, they're they're um, actually the same person, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and the reason that would be kind of like my dream lens is because to shoot with that lens, it's like a whole nother realm of experience. I mean, you're shooting sheet film, so you've got to have like a home lab and a dark room to develop sheet film. Although I think you probably get sent off to process, but that's what you would do. Um, and uh, you know, you need printing, and um, it's like a whole other step up from shooting 35 mil to, to be able to shoot the actor. But the images that it produces is like really. I, I can't really think of any other lens. I know that are there are other um, aerial lenses that were produced. That I know there was the Russian one, which I can't remember the name of, off the top of my head, and it's hard to find and it's expensive. And because of the aero ectar prices, that's gone up in value. And then there's a few made in England in the same period. I, I know they're the, the they're the Air, Air Ministry branded, I think, but they're not. Air Ministry. Yeah, that's but, the but that's it. But I think yeah. they were made by manufacturers. But yeah, yeah, Dalmeyer made one. Yeah, Dalmeyer yeah. made um, one, an Air Ministry lens, and the Air Ministry lenses were made by a few manufacturers. Yeah, TTH, Dalmeyer, and a few others. And I think Dalmeyer's and TTH are probably the two best of those. And even those are going for pretty high prices now, aren't they, Simon? Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Yeah, because of the the fame of the Aero Ektar. So. So that's my um that's my dream lens and um and Simon's got the kit but there's a problem there listeners because Simon <laughs> doesn't shoot portraits. <laughs> well, the, well, there's there's that, that's that's one obvious um um is it an oxymoron about me having a having one of the ultimate portrait lenses. Um but uh, just getting the thing, I mean, I've I've had this Aero Ektar for quite some time and I think I've spoken about it and the fact that it was attached to its original housing which would then attach to the uh, to the camera 
Uh, they would, I think they, these were on P twenty nine airplanes. I think, I think that's what they were. They were from. Um, but it, it, it's taken me quite a bit of. Uh, I've had a fair bit of difficulty in actually getting it removed from its housing uh, because it basically seized to it. Uh, but that's that's been done. So it's it's been freed. Um, so I, I bought this lens uh, probably about eighteen months ago, uh, thinking, well. I know what it is, I know what it can do, and I just need the camera to, to make it work. Because technically speaking, you you probably could, uh, well, that's not probably, you can adapt this to, to a digital camera, but you, you're going to be, it's designed to have an absolutely massive image circle. Uh, I mean, it's, it's actually designed to cover five inch by five inch film. So a 35 millimeter full frame sensor is just like a, a pinprick in the middle of uh, what it what it can actually do so i mean we, we talk about adapting full frame lenses onto micro four thirds well this is a much bigger crop uh, than than that yeah it's a huge image circle yeah e e exactly so you're not really you're gonna i'm not even sure you'll get any character uh, by adapting it to full frame because it's what's going on in those those edges is really where the, where the interest is and that's why shooting on yeah. something like um uh, a speed graphic is where it, ha where it where it counts. Now, the reason why the speed graphic is is a desirable camera for use, and there's a few cameras that can do this, but generally speaking, large format lenses and cameras, uh, the large form large format lenses have a shutter built into the lens, um, or or the lens is effectively built around the shutter, and and that's 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 how they work. Whereas this lens was never designed that way; it was never designed to be used on a conventional large format camera, and uh, the the camera that it would have been used with would have had some form of focal plane shutter. And that's the good thing about the air, about the speed graphic is it's got a really large shutter at the back of the camera, and it's uh, and it, it's it's like a blind system, and you 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 wind it up like clockwork and and set the shutter speed and sometimes if you want to that's the point if you want a faster shutter speed you have to wind it on further um, so you keep on keep on going through it until you get the fastest the, the shutter speed that you're uh, that you want to use um, so that's that's what's special about speed graphic and that's why i'm so happy that i've picked a speed graphic up but i can't just put the thing on there uh, because it's, it's massive this lens is and it won't fit a conventional lens board because the idea is a lens board clips into the into the camera uh, and attached to the lens board you you have your lens but you it's this is way too big to attach conventionally to a to a to a lens board um so i'm looking at actually getting one made there are some people out there that, that are selling these as well uh, but i'm i've got some i've got a local contact with an engineering company so i'm i'm going to see about having one of these things made made for myself assuming i can get it done at a, a cost of cost effective price so uh, you find somebody to do who's going to do a laser cut one for you uh, the problem the problem is not so much the lens board it's the it, it requires a thread um, oh right yeah okay. so i mean there are a couple of ways you you can do that you can effectively put a cylinder on onto the lens board with a thread in there and then just screw it in alternatively you could make a sort of you could hollow out the lens board pop it through the hole and then put some kind of clamp on the back of it and tighten it to the back of the lens board uh, those those are the two obvious ways of, of of doing it i'm i'm looking at 
going down the route of uh, having a, a screw-in section on, onto a lens board. But that it, I think it sticks out about 19 or 20 millimetres um, and that area is then threaded and then you just screw it into that and then you just clip the board on. Uh, but once that's in place, I can then start to use um, one of these one of these grail lenses. So um, I'm really excited. Right, so you've got to make a promise here, Simon, here and now, that your first photograph when you've got that frigging lens all kitted out and working – it cannot be a picture of a dog, a flower, or any other type. It's got to be a living, breathing human being that, that defines like a real portrait. Because that lens deserves to be like taken a real portrait. Because it's a portrait lens. Exactly. And flowers and dogs and things in your backyard and things on your table don't count. It's no. got to be a human being. I will. I will find a person. I, I promise you that. So. Uh... Well, I've only seen two portraits lately. They were actually pretty good. So you actually like can take good portraits. You just got like this stupid English reservation thing. I don't know where that comes from. Yeah, we don't have that problem in Australia. No, it's it's, it's a bit of an issue. But there you go. Um, I I think we need to uh, bring this uh, this conversation. Yeah. Uh, we need to start winding down. We've been talking for a long time again. Uh, we did a really long podcast, which was we tried to do a short podcast last week, and it was really long. Um, and we've. Um, yeah, we've oh, been Perry, talking for Great. Thank you, Perry. Yeah. Really oh, enjoyed, no problem. Uh, really enjoyed your diary from the front lines of Hong Kong. Awesome, awesome reportage, man. Really Thank love you. you. Yeah, Any, anybody that's not listened to that, it was that we put it out two weeks ago. Uh, please go if you've not heard uh, Perry's audio di- audio diary from a couple of weeks ago. Please make the effort to uh, to have a listen to that. It's enlightening, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Um, right. Let's uh, let's have we got any shout outs, uh, Perry? Have you got a shout out? Uh, yes, I have a quick shout out just for all of the local residents in my neighborhood yesterday who rushed to my aid after we all got collectively tear gassed. Uh, so to the lovely guy who brought me saline water, uh, to the lovely lady who gave me a mask for my face, uh, and to the two lovely kids who came and gave me a bottle of water. Thanks, guys. That was that was nice. So it was. That, that was. It was good to hear that earlier as well. That was. A, that was. That was quite touching. Yeah. 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 Um, Perry, uh, not Perry. <laughs> Cheyenne, have you got any shout outs you want to give? Yeah, I'd like to. I, last time I was on the podcast, I, I gave a shout out to you guys and thank you very much for having me back on for a second time and and being the fourth person to do the Desert Iron Lenses. That's uh, kudos. That's really nice. I appreciate that very much. But. I'd like to give a shout-out to um, my publisher, um, James Toccio, uh, who runs Casual Photophile. And like lots of people around the world that I admire, like, you know, Hamish and, and M and you guys and, and and Bellamy from Japan, Camera Hunter, and loads and loads of other people. I, I just go on, and Stephen Dowling, and loads of other people that admire and inspire me and but James has just given me kind of like a haven where I can write my 400, my 4,000 word diatribes about obscure cameras and lenses. So thank you, James. And it's nice to um, actually be paid a bit to, for some of my work. And, and the reason I chose him as well is because the site just looks beautiful. It's really well designed and, yeah. you know, he insists that all the photos are really top notch and the articles are really well written. So, I know I'm in really good company writing for the other people there as well who also write great articles. So 
that's my shout out to James. Thank you very much, mate. Just just quickly there, James was uh, our guest on episode 55 of the Classic Lenses podcast. So uh, you can go back also, and listen to James. That's a good listen as well. Yeah, very interesting guy, really cool guy. And he's got some some cameras that I'm even envious of. He's got that super links with the, oh, the mithril skin. Yeah. I can't top that. That's a really cool camera. Any, any others? Um, don't have to be. You've done well already. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've named most of the people, and I, you know, there's there's just really too many people to name. I mean, it's just everybody um, that is kind of that I named already, and and everybody knows all the bloggers and writers that are writing about film photography and lenses, and you know, everybody um, pretty much does this for little money or no money and um i just think that wherever possible um you know i would like to say with um like bellamy with his film and with steven um with cosmo photo and other people like that some people have slagged them for um you know selling rebranded film um you know my opinion is i'm going to put it out there that um um i don't see anything wrong with that and all the Film companies did it back in the day and Kmart sold their film and Sears had their film and it was all rebranded. And and for the things that, you know, people like Bellamy and Stephen do for the film camera community, I mean, they're entitled to earn some recompense and, you know, you should support them. And you can buy crap film that's a bit cheaper and it goes to some company that doesn't respect film like Fuji or you can buy film from Bellamy or Stephen, Cosmo Photo and and Japan Camera Hunter Film, and they're actually doing stuff to promote film photography. So if you pay a little bit extra, you're supporting the film photography community, and I think that's really important. I uh, just wish to point out that Cheyenne's opinion of Fuji is uh, Cheyenne's opinion and not necessarily <laughs> that of the Classic Lenses podcast. Yeah, uh, about the front of the podcast, Simon. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, and it, it's well, it, just what you just said there about rebranding film, that still goes on with larger names today and it's yeah. been going on for a very long time. So, yeah, I, I totally agree. People are given, being given a, um, a hard time for doing something that's helping to promote the use of film and bringing new people into film. So, you know, they, they should be supported, not not derided. Yeah, I know. Yeah, and they do most of the stuff that, like I've known Bellamy for a long time and I, I met up with him in Japan and, and he's always been really polite to me and, and I really admire him. And he kind of was instrumental on my journey into getting from digital back into film. And, and for a long time, like he like was on the bones of his ass and didn't get paid hardly anything. And for everything that he's done to popularize film photography, I mean, he's entitled to earn some money. There's nothing wrong with earning money. I mean, it's not, it's yeah. not evil to like make money. I mean, people should be rewarded for all the hard work that they do. And, and, and all those people, and I wish I could name everybody, you know, M from Emulsive and Stephen from uh, Cosmo Photo and, and Bellamy and Hamish Gill and, and you guys and, um, and all the podcasts and wonderful things that are on the internet now, all of these people do it for like next to nothing. And we, we need to all work together and, and whatever opinions you got, it's not really cool to go slagging people off on Facebook about really petty things. And it just makes us all look really puerile. I think, you know, if you've got a bad opinion, um, you know, if you don't like what somebody does, go and do it yourself. Yes. Right. It's easy to be a critic. 
get off your ass and do it better. Exactly. Uh, you know, to- to- so to- totally agree with that. Easy to sit in an armchair and, and you know, throw aspersions at people. But, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is, like you, Simon, uh, I was this whole journey to get to this podcast where and huge amount of effort with you and Johnny and everybody else in the podcast that goes into making each of these and you don't get paid practically anything for it. And uh, all the people that write blogs, they do mostly for the love of it and don't get paid hardly anything for it. So it's really important to support everything with the film community and, and stick together and, and just be polite, you know, just love each other. So we're all, we're all you know... We, we're not Trump voters, right? We should just all have a bit of – we can have a, a, an argument or a disagreement, but should just be polite and respectful at the end of the day, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. That's the end of my rant, showing okay. out. Well, on, on that note, um, if you wish to donate to the Classic Lenses podcast, we have a coffee page. Um, and if you just do a search for Classic Lenses podcast, you will find us on coffee.com. That's K-O-F-I. And I'll just quickly run through uh, those very generous people that have donated to us uh, in the past week. And that's uh, Barry Carr um, and uh, Nigel Cliff. And Nigel Cliff has left a message um, to say, uh, Pooh, Lenses and International Current Affairs. What other podcast can give you such variety? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and you're absolutely right. Um, and uh, Jeremy North has uh, donated to us, and uh, he goes, "Have you thought about setting up a group to complement beers and cameras called Burgers, Burgers and Lenses? Uh, love the food chat. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Burgers and Lenses. But uh, love the food chat, but less of Johnny's poop, please. Yes, I, th- and we, I think we, everyone can agree on that one. Um, yeah, I'm not going there. Yeah." And uh, finally, uh, Bob Matter, uh, holiday greetings uh, to my mates at the CLP. Um, here's to a bright new year and farewell to the old, um, to the things that are yet to come and the memories that we hold. Uh, be like Carl. So, uh, yeah, I mean. Yeah, thank you, Bob. Um, right. Um, I've just got uh, quick shout outs, two shout outs from me. Uh, the first one is my usual one. If uh, you're in the vague area of Stoke-on-Trent, North Staffordshire, that kind of thing, on a Tuesday night, uh, we do a darkroom evening, um, usually from 7 o'clock or till quite late. Um, so if you want to come along to that, just get in touch with me on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook, and we'll go through those uh, places a little bit later. So uh, um, we had a couple of visitors uh, last week, including Fraser Ewell, who dropped down. Uh, he didn't come specifically from Scotland to come to us. He was passing through, but um, he was in no hurry to leave. He, he turned up early and uh, he was still there about quarter to 11, I think. So um, it's good fun. And it, yeah, we talk about we, yeah, we talk about camera stuff anyway, as well as do the uh, processing and printing and things like that. So uh, it's a it's a good night. Um, and then my other shout out is for an event that's happening on Saturday in Worcester, uh, and it's called One Shot in One Shot Inch and Down, and. The event is in two parts. There's a photo walk, uh, I think it's on the afternoon in, in Worcester, and it's been organised by Hamish Gill. How many times have we mentioned Hamish this week? Um, but yeah, Hamish is organising a, fo- a photo walk uh, around Worcester. Hopefully the weather's going to be okay. And then in the evening, uh, we're going to have a viewing of a short film that was produced um, called One Shot Inch and Down and it was produced by Simon Riddell and David Allen, those people that listen to 
the Sunday 16 podcast will be familiar with those names and also uh, uh, one shot inch and down and they'll also be uh, uh, aware of the, uh, the the nickname of it and that's uh, Tanky McOneshot um, and this film is about taking a photograph in some World War Two um, storage chambers where they used to store oil in in these enormous um, chambers and you can go down there or it's possible to go down there it's, it's not as easy as it sounds um, and these guys uh, went down there and took a large format photograph and then developed it and there's a it's basically this film is a, a story of of that and things like having to use a, a children's paddling pool filled with developer to 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 print the enormous uh, print that they made from it so uh really looking forward to that and that is uh, it's all free uh if you want more details uh go to photowalk.me and um and there's gonna be quite a few other people going all of that including graham jago from and uh aid from the sunday 16 podcast and loads of other people as well i did have uh i did have a list of people that were going and um yeah there, there are loads of people going to that so uh come along and uh enjoy a, a photo walk with us there so that's it for shout out so let's go back to cairns in australia and cheyenne about so how how can people keep up with the kind of stuff that you do um and you okay. talked about casual <laughs> photo file but what, what else yeah all my, all, all my articles uh, uh some older articles i did um you'll be able to find them if you just google my name and photography uh I did some for Japan Camera Hunter and some other blogs, but most of my recent ones for the last year or so are all on casual photophile. If people want to see my photographs, uh, I'm majority of them I upload to Instagram. I'm at Big Shot Photos. Um, I'm on Facebook as Cheyenne Morrison Photography. Um, and I'm really bad with Flickr, but I'm on Smug Mug. Um, so it's, uh, um, I think it's Cheyenne Morrison. Uh, if you do, if you do Cheyenne Morrison smug mug, you'll come up with my smug mug and it's got, and look for film photos. I've got a folio there with all my film photography. It's not all my shots. It's kind of like my nicest shots, the ones that I've done for articles, um, and some that aren't, that aren't published in articles and, um yeah i'm on facebook i already said that and instagram what else is there yeah that's the majority of stuff um and if anybody wants to get in contact with me the easiest way is just through the photography with classic lenses um podcast the two pages there's the podcast page and the main page so i post in there and i usually make snide comments about other people's photographs or lenses <laughs> And um, I'll send um, Simon and Perry some images and some links to the three lenses, four lenses I discussed in Desert Islands. I've written articles about all three of them. Yeah. So I'll send the links to the articles about those three. I haven't written anything about the Aero Ektar because it's a dream lens. So I can't write about that yet. But Simon's going to be taking beautiful portraits soon so he can write an article about it <laughs> well i'll definitely be taking portraits anyway so uh yeah, yeah. i look forward to that yeah no me too, me too um cheyenne it's been a pleasure to have you on again and um hopefully this is recorded properly because if 
famously, uh, oh, we, we had a one-to-one chat once upon a time, and only your oh. voice was recorded. So, yeah, and that was a really good one too. It was. It was probably the. It was probably the second best podcast we ever done. The, the best one, of course, was the the one with uh, Carl and Johnny, which we also lost. And then I think yours was the second best podcast, which we then, then subsequently lost. So, uh, yeah. It's, uh, anyway, been, yeah, it's been, been, like it. been great to have you back on so thank, thank you for, for being our guest again yeah oh, thank you for having me and um, in um, very high um, what do you call it um, uh, highly regarded group of people that have been on the, the desert island which is um, a really cool thing to do and I appreciate that really very much Simon and Perry and really really cool chatting with you guys and I appreciate it very much well, you're more than welcome. Um, so, Perry, uh, what, are you, what are your uh, contact details and things like that? <laughs> well, my phone number, address, and ID. <laughs> uh, no, you can find me most of the time these days on Instagram at Perry G. I'm also on Flickr as Perry G or PerryG.com, which I never update. And do you want me to do the stuff that Johnny normally does? Yeah, go for it. Uh, for us oh crap i have to remember now if you want to get in touch with us uh send an email to classic lenses podcast at gmail.com is that right right. yep uh don't send an email through the website because that goes to simon's spam folder yep uh but you can go to the website which is classic lenses podcast.com where you will find all the show notes and you can also find us in our Facebook group, which is the Classic Lenses Podcast Facebook group. Uh, and we also lurk around occasionally in photography with classic lenses. Yeah. One more. Is... One more. Oh, on Instagram. No, no, um, no, no. Oh, it's nope. two more. I forgot one as well. But yeah, let's do the Instagram first. Okay. Uh, on Instagram, you can follow the hashtag Best Vintage Lens and the. Uh, account, I guess, best vintage lens, where they showcase images from vintage lenses, and also our good friend Ricardo Bion occasionally does reviews uh, of our episodes, which are often better than the episodes themselves. He's just what have I forgotten? I was going to say he's just done one for last week. It's a really good listen, uh, read, I should yeah. say. So uh, thank you again, Ricardo. Um, and the last one is uh, for those people that want to have subtitles while they listen to our show. Oh, if you want to read uh, our show, you can go on YouTube and search for Classic Lenses Podcast. Uh, we'll see what it does to Cheyenne's Australian accent. <laughs> oh, right. well, uh, I, I think I'm going to do one more shout out. And that's to Mr. Johnny Sisson in Chicago, who wanted to be with us, who couldn't be with us today. So um... we, we, we never told people why he's not here. Um <laughs> It, he he's he's getting his internet replaced, so he he doesn't have internet this week, and the the internet people are trekking through the snow in Chicago to do whatever it is they need to do. Yeah. So he'll he'll be back next week, I think. Yeah, we miss you, Johnny. Um, right. He's so probably uh, pooing. Yeah, and uh, so just just very quickly now uh, for myself. I'm on Twitter as Simon Four. That's S I M O N F O R. I'm on Instagram as Simon Forster Photographic. Uh, as and as Perry said, that we we hang out in the in two Facebook groups in particular, and that's photography with classic lenses and um, 
Classic Lenses podcast, which is uh, the the Facebook group uh, that is associated specifically with the podcast. Um, yeah, so that's that's just about it. I would say I'd like to say thank you to Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for the Octo Blues theme music that we use. And that's it. So I hope you've enjoyed this week's show. And if you can, be like Carl. <laughs>